The Lodgecast Reboots. The Lodgecast Reboots. You're listening to The Lodgecast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. Hey, hey, everybody. George Andriopoulos, the launch dad himself, coming at you with episode 141 today of the LaunchCast Reboots. It's our second reboot episode. So we are actually rebooting episodes 105 and 106 called A Christmas Carol. These were two of my favorite episodes of our first season. This was Carol Silva. For me, this was such a huge get in terms of a guest. Carol is a legendary New York news anchor who had just retired, who had just gone through a tremendous year of uh, health battles, which she talks about during this episode. And man, was she just an incredible, incredible guest. So fun fact about this was this was actually two episodes originally. Um, it was a little long. We had like three hours of interview that we edited down to like two and a half hours. And I didn't want to bog down, you know, the episode and have it be super long. So we cut this into two episodes. But for the reboost, we splice them together. We're making it one episode, episode 141. Um, Carol was just such an incredible guest. I mean, she was so honest with us, and she has sage advice in terms of career longevity, in terms of personal success, uh, faith. Man, she she talks about everything. Um, we actually had a co-host for this episode, Jennifer Muccioli. Um, it was our second time having a co-host. I had originally toyed with the idea of having a co-host um, for every episode, a rolling co-host, but you know, we, we tested it out a few times and we wound up changing up that idea as the season went on. But yeah, this was, this was so much fun. This episode, this was, um, to date at that time was, was just such a huge accomplishment for me to, to interview Carol and have the type of interview that we had coming from a person that was, you know, on the news and, and, uh, interviewed her fair share of, uh, of incredible people over time. And so uh, I want you guys to enjoy another LaunchCast reboot, episode 141, A Christmas Carol. See you next time, guys. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the LaunchCast. God, I love this music. Who else got a theme song out there? Get at me, podcast people. Come on. We are putting it down today on your favorite podcast in the planet, and I am in a talkative mood. We're talking leadership. We're talking business. We're talking growth, and we're talking life. And we are doing it all because it's my show, and that's why we're doing it. Let's hit that chorus. (sighs) Love that song. We have a very special guest with us today. 
Thank you so much for being here. My it's honor. I'm so psyched. So I'm psyched. This is kind of like a marriage of all my TV years lacing in a little bit of where it all started in radio. So I like this. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Uh, but first, I want to introduce my co-host today. My guest co-host today is my good friend, Jennifer Muccioli. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jen. Jen and I have been friends and colleagues for, for quite a while now. Uh, and I'm going to pull up her bio here. Jennifer is a director of communications at KPMG. She is my co-producer at TEDx Farmingdale and the co-host of the upcoming podcast, Sanity is Overrated. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> this is exciting. What a day to be your special co-host. Yeah, thank you for being here. You're uh, welcome. I, I'm, I'm so excited to have everybody here. I want to dive in because this is a really important episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of great stuff. So ready, guys? Ready. Ready. Right, let's do this. So uh, my guest today, Carol Silva, who needs no intro, but I'm going to do one anyway. Carol Silva is the Emmy Award winning, three-time Emmy Award winning. Morning and daytime edition anchor at News 12 Long Island, or at least she was before she retired recently. Uh, News 12 Long Island, America's first 24-hour regional news network. She is a storyteller, a motivational speaker, and a host. She graduated and received an honorary doctorate from NYIT right here on Long Island. Uh, I have a list of awards here. It's insane, this list of awards. Three Emmy Awards, 30 New York State Associated Press Awards, Regional Cable Ace Press Club, Women of Distinction, Top 50 Women on Long Island, uh, the Juliet Lowe Award from the Girl Scouts, America, Girl Scouts of America Highest Adult Award. The list goes on and on. Uh, recently inducted into the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame. This is, it's an incredible career spanning nearly five decades. Can I, can I add one? Please. Um, in December also, December 6th, the Emmy Award people, NATIS, the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences, inducted me into their silver circle. The silver circle. Which is for 25 years of service in television. Although I've had 44 in the business, my husband still laughs at me because as soon as I saw the silver circle, I was so touched. I couldn't believe it. It's not the kind of thing you apply for. It's something that they just give you. I have to admit, though, as soon as I saw silver circle, I said, what would it take to get to gold. And then it would take getting up at 2.15 in the morning for another six or so years. And I said, no thanks. Was there any thought of that happening? <laughs> uh, no, 2.15 in the morning got to be a little earlier yeah. all the time. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it did. I'm sure it did. Um, the title of this episode, A Christmas Carol. So I was really thinking about it. I try and do these, these kitschy little titles, right? I want to make them fun. And I thought I, I, I thought of this one after I watched another episode of Crash Caroling oh, that you yeah. guys do on News 12, which is so much fun. Uh, this year, you were surprised, right? Elisa uh -huh. and Elizabeth uh, and Rich, they took you to Holy Trinity High School. Yes. yes. And yes. the choir sang to me. Yeah. That's incredible. That's the alma incredible. mater of Carol and Jennifer both. Yes. Amen. <laughs> HT. Yeah. HS. There we go. <laughs> Are we going to um, start singing? I should, say, I should explain what crash caroling is. Yes. Normally what we do is, and I speak very much in the present tense at News 12 because that is still so much my family. Yeah. And I mean, I still have to go back and clean out my office and hang around and do things with them anyway. Um, but it, it's where we find people who could really use some cheer. Yeah. And we've gone from the VA hospital in Northport to schools for special needs kids. Uh, one year, the Glen Cove Police Department wrote to us and said they'd like a visit. And we thought, you know what? For our men and women in blue, let's go do sure. that. So we normally just go and we pound down the door. We come in and we start to sing, some of us better than others. Right. Aaron Colton, notorious. 
notoriously bad. Elizabeth has a great voice, <laughs> and the rest of us fall somewhere in between. And um, so that's that's what Crash Caroling is. But this year, they decided because it was going to be my last formal year of Crash Caroling that they would take me to places that would be special to me, including our alma mater, Jennifer Holy Trinity. Yes. Right, right. And you also visited the Northwell Monter Cancer Center, right? We did, the place where those doctors have saved my life. So yeah. if anything, if anybody, they deserved a real holiday cheer. They, they how, absolutely deserve it. How emotional was that for you? Describe to us what you felt like being Crash Caroled. Um, I knew in advance that I, I was going to be Elizabeth's victim, essentially, <laughs> okay. her production victim. What I didn't know was that she, I hope Timmy's not listening, Timmy's eight years old, her son, she took his little elf glasses and she taped them she over taped so them. I couldn't yeah. see anything. I didn't know where we were going. Brian Gigaleski is our photographer, our feature photographer. He does all the special things in the morning that we do. And he's phenomenal. And he was kind of lying, I think. Okay, we're going to go left. Go, oh, look, we're on the highway. Oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> because I was literally blindfolded the entire time. When I went to Holy Trinity, aside from almost tripping when I got out of the car because I couldn't see where I was and my toe hit the curb as I got out. Um, we parked illegally, Jennifer, right in front of the school. Were you not uh, allowed to where park? Where you're not allowed to park. That's where we parked. Okay. It felt so great. Okay. So and nobody great. said curb there. Watch no, that curb. No, none of that. But rule breakers. We okay. were rule breakers. And when I went in, and they just started singing. I mean, they're just, they're such a powerful art school also. So that was beautiful. Sure. And then when they took me to Monter to thank those doctors, how do you thank somebody for saving your life? Yeah, exactly. So emotional, phenomenal. It was, it was just, it was... A moment in life I'll never forget. Yeah. 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 Uh, a spark moment. A spark moment. That's something that I talk about on this show a lot. So, um, you know, along my journey as, as a thought leader, as just a, a, a man, um, a father, a husband, I, I've discovered these moments in life, right, that I like to call spark moments. And they're these these moments that you, you look back on and whether you're in the moment or not, you kind of realize, yeah, this is this is one of those mental snapshots. This is a moment that will be for some reason or another, pivotal in my life. And some of them are those reflective moments like this one, mm -hmm. and some of them are those moments where there's really a change that sparks, right? And we'll, we'll get to talk about that. Um, so I wanna, I wanna jump right in and ask the first question that we ask of all our guests here. Carol, are you a leader? I am a leader, but I didn't start out to be a leader. It's interesting, I look back, my dad was in the military for 20 years. I grew up with a lot of other military families, never in military housing, not over in Mitchell Field back in the day, although we had the option, or in Uniondale, we had the option. My parents went for a Levitt House, the third level of military housing on Long Island. Right. So we lived in a Levitt House in Hicksville, backed into Stewart Avenue. Yep. I was five houses away from Holy Trinity, and, and we grew up there, and I just it as being part of a tribe. Three kids born in three years with my dad in the military, um, U.S. Naval Corpsman, 1st Marine Division, Okinawa, Iwo Jima, wow. South Pacific for years and years. Saw the worst of the worst. Ended up at St. Albans Naval Hospital at one point. And my mom and her sisters were in the canteen, kind of like the USO. That's where they met. Wow. There. And they ended up getting married. They lived in St. Albans for the first year. We moved to Long Island. I was in Hicksville from the time that I was 13 months old. So the first thing that I learned was how to function in a tribe, mm -hmm. how to do for other people. My dad is Mexican. His relatives are all in California, some in Mexico. In fact, his sister ended up moving back to Mexico. And so I grew up really with my Irish-American 
Fitzsimons family. I still have the Fitzsimons family reunion at my home every uh. year, which is fabulous. Um, so I grew up learning how to do for others. And somewhere along the way, I think that the morals and the ethics and the optimism of my parents was the thing that gave me the attitude that I had, certainly helped with the success that I've had, the career success that I've had. And I became a leader because other people started to watch what I was doing. And I never realized how much of a leader until this last year, yeah. until my retirement. When I look at the things that people said, by the way, retiring from News 12 and getting up at 2.15 in the morning, I've not retired from life by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in fact, you're on my first stop on What's Next. Oh, I'm so This happy. is my How very honored. first stop we on What's honored. Next. How well, this honored. is kind of a challenge. You know, okay, we're going to ask you anything about your life. Yeah. Okay, I'm in. I'm yeah. ready. I'm and ready to try this. That's really that's really the funny thing about this. Um, I do a lot of research when I when I do these interviews, and I'm I'm still new at it, but I'm really enjoying diving into leadership, right? And what that means for for a variety of people. We've had a musician. We had Mike Del Judas from who Billy Joel's band. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable guy. Um, we've had Trisha Brooke, who's a, a, a nominated, I think, almost nominated for for two Academy Awards for documentaries and. Uh, award-winning director. Um, we've had a, a first lieutenant from the U.S. Army uh, last week. We had Matt Campo, the CEO of Ronald McDonald House, Long Island. And so we're getting a, a look into the minds of, of leadership in all these different industries. And what I love is when I do this research and I really dive back because I wanted to go way back. I wanted to go back to Bond Lane in Hicksville. <laughs> 43 Bond Lane, Hicksville. Yeah, I wanted to go back to Bond Lane and talk about um, you know your parents and kind of see... What about your childhood growing up shaped the leader that we say that we see today? You mentioned your father, Mexican American, your mother, Irish American, uh, and you you described them as Ricky and Lucy. Yeah, they were like Ricky and Lucy when we were kids. I mean, my father played the Spanish classical guitar that we still have. It's a slightly smaller guitar, and he used to get up. There were pictures of my parents where my dad would be standing up and singing in the hotels. You know, and he wasn't hired to do that. They would go. That was, you know, the date back yeah, in the day. Yeah. Sure. And there he was with the, um, we just watched the movie The Two Popes. Bob and oh. I did, my husband and I, uh, two nights ago. Yeah. And the beginning and the end of it is Besame Mucho. Now, when ah. you're a little kid, you sing songs, right? Mm -hmm. All kids sing songs. And Mary had a little, we all sang Besame Mucho. Yeah. <laughs> my cousin texted me. <laughs> Kathleen said, oh, my gosh, look at that. Besame Mucho in the beginning and the end. So, yeah. y you know, I started to, um, I started to answer the question before, and I didn't finish. What I learned from my parents was morals, and I learned to never quit. I learned to think about everybody else and just to keep going. I learned not to say a lot of negative things to myself. And then when I was at work, I worked as hard as I could, even when it didn't go well. And it didn't go well in each place along the way. And yet I ended up with 33 years, yeah. 32 of them, the anchor desk at News 12 Long Island. I mean, that doesn't happen. Chuck Scarborough was sitting at the next table to me at the Silver Circle Awards in New York City. Sue Simmons came because David Ushery from NBC was being honored. With 33 years, and honestly, 33 years for a woman in front of a television, we used to say all the time, and it's still true to some degree, that the men were allowed to age gracefully and the mm -hmm. women aged out. Yeah. You aged out. We you got older looking, that. you know, you, you aged out. Yeah. And so by working hard and keeping at it, and I think being moral, and I think growing, I think becoming a better person, that's what's made me a leader. Um, I have heard from so many people, you know, writers of mine. When, when it comes to a young writer, 
you can just change the script that they write. The way that it works is there's a producer who selects the stories overnight and writes a good number of them. And then we have a couple of writers on each show. And the writers would write, and you know, some of them don't even own houses yet. So their their perspective on the world isn't completely full. Now, I could just change everything, or I could go back and work with each one of them every day. And that probably was not their favorite thing at the time, but it turns out Mike Fitzsimmons, who became the assistant news director at NBC, said to me one day, I wouldn't have gotten there without you. Jesse Masters is now working at CBS Network right now. He left within the past six months. My last day on the air, he took that day so that he could be with me and wow. said, I wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been. And they did not love when I said, listen, this is how we do it. This is why we do it, the way we do it. And I think that was so key to my leadership. And over time, the difference from my 20s, I started in the business at 20 at WBAB, to where I ended at a proud 65, I've become a nicer person too. Yeah. Right. And so my leadership my, my leadership power, I don't mean force over other people, but my leadership power has increased with my kindness and my empathy and my understanding. Also, having kids has done that for me. Sure. Because I always think about, uh, well, how would I want somebody treating my sons, right. my daughter, especially in the beginning on a new job? How does it feel for you to hear from Mike and others how impactful you were to their career I mean did you did you know it at the time how does that feel when he emails or calls you or or texts you and say it's because of you that I'm where I am today you know you know a little bit of it along the way but I never ever had any perspective like I do now in the rearview mirror but it wasn't even a rearview mirror I mean I turned around and looked back, well, I had the little detour that we talked about, right? Two and a half months. Yeah. I was diagnosed September 18th with stage four cancer. And I said all, and, and I had already announced in the end of May that I was going to be retiring. Because while I'm young enough and strong enough and healthy enough, I said in May, young enough, strong enough, and healthy enough to go do something else. It's time for me to expand and I, I do so much talking in schools and, and to school kids and to women's groups. And I have more to say from everything that I've collected in the life that I have led. So I had the opportunity. You, you threatened to retire or you threatened to die. Mm -hmm. And that was basically it. People came out of the woodwork. If I tell you I've gotten thousands and thousands and thousands of letters and calls and messages about we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, but also this is what you did for me. So I didn't have this perspective. And what the pity is, is that so many of us deserve it. Yeah. I got it because I'm on television. Yeah. And I got it because I had the ability to publicly touch more people, but we all deserve this. I said in the last four months since my diagnosis, I'm living my eulogy. I am living my living eulogy right now. And it's awesome. And it reminds me how important it is for us to turn around to the people who've done something right in our lives, even just be nice to us in the day. You know, even the woman at the counter in Macy's, the, you know, guy at, at the car wash in 7-Eleven, you know, who holds the door for you, to actually take that moment, take that one moment and pause and turn around and thank somebody and thank them specifically. Thank you, that was kind. Thank you. 
you know what? I, I was a little overwhelmed right now, and you did this for me. Thank them specifically. And every time you do that, it's like you plant a seed and you get back twice as much. Right. Yep. That's why my life and my heart and my soul have exploded. Yeah. And I, I think I think that reflection is, is so important in leadership, right? I, I think that... Um, this is something I've always struggled with where when you get the accolades, you get people coming out of the woodworks and saying, you helped me or you're doing a good job. It's tough for me now. And we talked about this a little bit before, um, the person that I used to be versus the person I am now and that, that struggle of keeping that person at bay, making sure they don't come back. Um, for me, it's always been very tough to hear that in recent years. Because um, you don't want to feed your ego? You don't want you, you want to make sure that what you're doing is benevolent, right? You don't want to feed that ego. You want to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And look, you know, uh, in what I do, and not not as much as you being a public figure, but I try and be a public figure out there. I'm trying to be a thought leader, and so I don't want people thinking I do this for the accolades. But that, but when they do tell you, you know, when you get that feedback and you're able to reflect on it, it's it's really helpful for the soul, you know, just to know that you made that difference. And and. You know, there's a place in the Bible where it talks about humility being honest. And that's the thing. When you can be honest, my, my son, love him, but he's a 25-year-old guy. And something will happen in his comment is, ego, mom, ego. I mean, always <laughs> since he was a teenager, which is okay for the ego check. But I try to turn around and tell him, you know what? When I can be honest and hear that I've done well, it makes me stronger, and then I can do more. Sure. So I don't see it as feeding my ego. I believe that we are given the gifts that we're given, not so we can be the most popular kid in school, the best athlete, the best you know, the most good-looking, best-looking kid in school. That's not why we're given gifts. We're given gifts because we're supposed to use them. That's why. Because if you're the most popular kid in school, then you have the number one responsibility to find at least one kid a day, a week, even a month, and make sure that they have a place to sit yep. at the lunch table. Make sure that they at least have somebody that they can talk to in the library when you're not supposed to be talking, but, you know, ask for help. That We're given those gifts because we're supposed to use them for good. And so there are two parts for that. I fully accept that. I fully accept the thank you. Sometimes I'll even say to people, you know, I, I've heard a lot, you've made a difference in my life. You really have helped. And I turn around and I say, do you mind if I ask you how? Mm -hmm. And it's not so that I can feel better. Good Lord, I don't know that I could feel any better about myself Feedback. right now. But I want to know what did I do that worked? I want to remember to do that again. Or what was happening at that point in my life? Could I have done that better? Whatever it is, it's important to hear those things. And nobody has said to me, ego mom, except Shane in all of that, <laughs> you know, in, in that time. So I, I, think it's, I think it's important and I think it's so valuable. And one of the mistakes in business and especially in entertainment is, and it may be an older management idea, let's not feed their egos because they're going to want more money. But if you don't elevate your human resource, right. the humans that they are, they will never, no matter what your business is, give you the best. Right. And I've had people at work tell me for years, I'll go to you know, reporters or writers and say, you know what, you did a really great job on this today. You did, if it bounces off my head, I go. And I've had people say, I'd love that kind of feedback on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not every quarter, once a year, three times a year. I think that that is a failing of management in 
any business whatsoever that, listen, managers are busy. I mean, in any day and age, and especially in this day and age, and we're all doing more with less, including our managers. But for managers to be able to do that, to realize that when they see that somebody who's worked their cash register or marketed that product, sold that plan, when somebody's done a good job, to actually go and take less than 60 seconds out of the day and say, that was a great thing you did, and it was a great thing because... Three years ago, you weren't doing that. Look at how much you've grown. Or that was good for the business. You've added business stability. Or that was just kind. And and that is a leadership failing. And that's something I did well. And that's something I learned from my father. I think that's so important, seizing that moment out of every ordinary day just to say to someone, you've impacted my life. You're doing a great job. I felt you're valued because of the following reasons. It's just so important. It fuels humanity. It makes us more mindful, and it really brings us together because your tribe grows as you do that. Oh, my gosh. Your tribe exponentially grows, and you never know when you need to rely on that tribe to help you through other times in your life. And by by you touching people personally, there's a community behind you, ready to rally around you when you need it most. And I know you know a thing or two about that. Yeah. And and that's the biggest difference for me in what I've discovered over the years of of running a company and managing people. There's a big difference between managing somebody and leading somebody. Mm -hmm. Huge, huge difference. And when you consider that not only are they a vital part of the machine, but that idea of human capital, right, that, that these are real people that you're dealing with and real feelings. And so when you lead them in a way where you're empowering somebody and, and people are part of that team, they're vital to the success of an organization or a team, that's leadership. That's not managing. That's leadership. And then you get the best out of them. Yeah. Right. And so your business does better. Yes. I mean, if you need to start with a quote-unquote selfish motivation, it benefits the business. Yeah, absolutely. If for nothing else. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I want to touch on uh, real quick, you mentioned before, uh, you touched on faith a little bit. So uh, growing up on Long Island, um, you know, as we all did, we're both Dalers, Jennifer and I, and, and you're from Hicksville. Um, you know, growing up Dalers on Long Island. meaning Farmingdale, Farmingdale. folks. Farmingdale. For those of you who are not Dalers. <laughs> yeah. Listen, if you don't know what a Daler is. <laughs> Uh, I'm here to translate every yes. story <laughs> from taxes to dealers. You're welcome. And so growing up on Long Island, you, you as we mentioned, went to uh, Holy Trinity High School as the yes. Jennifer. Um, I want to talk about, uh, briefly, I want to talk about that and your faith growing up. Because I know you've mentioned this, not just today, but in interviews that I've watched uh, recently. Um, I want to talk about what kind of role faith played in your life growing up. And then we'll, later on, we'll get to what, what kind of role it's played now. Well, I could tell you that my mother, who went to Mass every morning, um, told me once, people ask me why I go to Mass every morning. And I tell them, if you had a daughter like Carol, you'd go to Mass every morning, too. But I don't think that's <laughs> what it you was. <laughs> you know, my disclaimer at the front is, you don't have to be Catholic. I don't care what you are. We all have a spiritual side to us. Mm-hmm. And... Mine, God is what I believe, exists in some form, not some guy up in the sky, but something certainly greater than I exists. And that greater being decided that I would be born into a Catholic family. And so I was. But the first place that I learned what it is to be Catholic or a person of faith is by watching my mother, by watching her be kind to other people, 
be thoughtful of what other people need before you think of yourself. Um, that, that was the first part of my faith. And, and faith is a living thing. It's your guidance along the way. And if you pay enough attention to your guidance, and it's the only thing that you see modeled for you, it is the way that you live. And I live. I'm one of three kids. My older brother's 11 months older. The younger is 22 months younger. When I was a kid in that military house in Hicksville, we slept in the same bedroom until I was six years old. All three of us slept in the same bedroom. And you learn how to think about other people. That's where faith came from. The image that I grew up with was image of a God. Connor, my daughter, I remember her saying when she was little that God was a she. And we said, well, that's good too. That works for me to this, you know, that works with for me until this day. Where is faith? The, those building blocks that my parents put out there for us, that we would go to church. Church is a time of reflection for me still. It's a place where I go and I close my eyes and I listen to the music and I think and, and the busyness stops. That's some of the power of it. It's also the power of the community. Connor and Shane both sang in the choir at church at the 10 o'clock mass. That is still our community. Those are still, we all have kids in our 20s now. But that's where we go still yeah. as parents because that is our community and a church community, a synagogue community, a, you know, a, a temple community, a mosque community, whatever community is, that's a good thing, a place where people are going to do good. And that faith reminds me that I'm not alone, that I owe it to others to think of others, to do for others. Faith is everything to me. It really is. And, you know, I had a little detour. Yeah. Um, you know, September through December. And I was diagnosed with stage four cancer on September 18th. And as my doctor, Dr. Sita Ramu at Mantra Cancer Center at Northwell, when she was giving me the diagnosis with her PA, Kira Barnaby, it was not four seconds later that in my head I heard, thank you God for healing me. The words were there. Wow. The words were present. My husband says to me, you have great faith. Why don't I have that faith? Well, the other thing that I do is what my parents gave me, and then they sent us to Catholic school, Holy Family Grammar School, Holy Trinity High School. I was at University of Dayton for one year when I was in college, and you know, going, it, it had been a Catholic school and was still essentially a Catholic school. And going, the coolest thing to do during the week was go to 10 o'clock mass on a Sunday night. You took mm -hmm. your shoes off, you crowded, people sat in the aisles barefoot, it was great. You tried to find your shoes when you left. If it was winter, <laughs> it was a little more challenging, you really needed them. But I have always fed myself faithful or optimistic stuff. It's the people I choose to spend my energy on, it is the people I choose to let in the closest to me. It's what I listen to in the radio. I only set a couple of music buttons. After all my rock and roll years in radio, I only set a couple of music buttons in my car, um, probably a year or two ago, in part because my husband, who is really an audiophile, he listens to everything, loves live music. He probably made enough fun of me, and it was probably peer pressure in my own house. <laughs> but I, I, I love constant reinforcement of what is good. And so it's what I feed my soul all the time, very intentionally, very deliberately. And all of those things combined, here they are. Yeah. Here they are, and here they manifested when 
they said you have stage four cancer. It spread from the tumor in your lung and more than a liter, more than twice this bottle of cancerous fluid around your lung, it spread to 12 tumors in your brain. And I heard that news and I repeat, the words that went through my head were, thank you God for healing me. And that is the result of how we choose to build life over time. And it doesn't have to be Catholic, but do you choose to build your life in an optimistic, hopeful, helpful way? And if you do, maybe there's a good chance yeah. that you'll end up there. And on November 11th, I went back. I, I had a lung surgery, October 2nd, I believe. And then to remove the fluid, the tumor was still there, but they were hoping it would grow with the drug. And then October 8th, the following week, I had three hours of gamma knife radiation, laser radiation on my head. November 11th, one of the doctors told me, I am looking at your MRI now of your brain, your CAT scan, your picture of your brain. I cannot find any trace of the first nine tumors, and somebody would have to show me where the other three brain tumors had been to know they ever existed. It's incredible. It is great incredible. science. We have the most incredible medical people on Long Island. Yeah. A, a former number two man at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Rich Barakat, is now the head of oncology at Monter, at, at Northwell, and is bringing in now all these people, now that his first year there is over, the no poaching year is over, he's bringing in the best of the best from around the country, and he's a remarkable man. We have incredible science there. But the doctors keep telling me it's my attitude, too. Yeah. yeah. It is. And you can dial yeah. that back to your childhood when you said, I learned at a very early age not to say negative things to myself. I will not repeat I, negative things to myself. Yeah. I, I tell school groups, I tell my own kids, if somebody came to the door and they said, hey, drink this, it's poison, you'd slam the door in their face. But why do we let people not only say negative things to us, but then, that, that we can't help if somebody says it, but then we repeat it over and over and over and over again to ourselves. When I, I came from a family that had little or no money, and you know, you, you sleep in a bedroom with your brothers because there's no money when yeah. you're a kid. When I was in college, when I was at University of Dayton, I was working for the chairwoman of the education department. And she had done some great work with, oh, the woman who studied death and dying. Jeez, I forget her name. But she had, she had studied under the woman. So I know somebody out there is yelling the name of, everybody knows who she is. <laughs> So I remember her, she was a brilliant woman, the chair of the education department, and she said to me, for every negative thing you ever say to a child, you have to say seven positive things. Now, it's not that we should say, you know what, you should never punch your brother in the face again, but you're a really nice person. I, right. I mean, you know, we make our kids responsible for knowledgeable of who they truly are, but let's look for the good and let's reinforce the good as well. And that is what built me to the strength of where I am today. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. It, it, it is incredible. And um, for me, faith within leadership, right, has been so interesting. And I love this point of view because uh, throughout the first five interviews we've had, this is a totally unique point of, point of view in terms of faith. Um, 
I've always looked at faith. I grew up uh, Greek Orthodox, right? So very I similar. I figured as much. When I tried to learn to spell your name, that was one of the first things I thought of. So very similar uh, to Catholicism in a lot of ways. We are very rooted in our traditions, right? Um, and so I took that uh, growing up, and I still practice uh, the Greek Orthodox religion, um, but I took that growing up as whenever I needed something, right, whenever there was something uh, that I, I was going through, not, not that I was asking for something, but something that I was going through, and it was one of those dire straits moments or um, just something difficult that I or my family was going through, you look to something, whether it's a God or, or whatever, faith doesn't have to be a person for, for somebody. Uh, and we, we chatted a little bit about this before the interview, but faith doesn't have to be a person. Faith could just be a belief in something. And within my own leadership, you know, years of, of doing what I do for a living um, has taught me and, and given me a lot of skills, big skill set. But there are still times, you know, running a business, being a business owner, being responsible for other people, uh, taking care of my family, where you get into a situation and you just you go, I don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. I've exhausted all possibilities. And faith for me has become, you know what, George? I step out of the situation and I go, you know what, George? You always figure this out. You always figure this out. Let it happen. And that that's faith for me um, within my leadership. And I just trust that whatever's going on, whether it's me or a higher power, is going to help to take me to that next level. And it always works out every single time. I was driving here today, and I thought, what if this doesn't go well? You know, that kind of entered my mind. Or, or what if there are stumbling blocks in this? Mm-hmm. And... I have come to the point because of my practice. Stephanie Rose, who works with us at News 12, is a yogi. She went to India to be trained as a yogi. I mean, this girl is serious. Love her. She talks about a practice of yoga, and it's mind, spirit, meditation, big meditation. I'm I'm not into the meditation yet. I have not even begun to master the meditation yet, but I have time now. Nonetheless, the practice for me has become so natural, and I have to say in particular in the last year, where I stopped when I was driving here today, and I thought, what if I'm not doing a good job of this? You know, like I said, this is my first thing. This is my first step in what's next. What if I haven't done a good job? And I stopped, and I thought for a minute, and I just let God walk in, that God presence, that higher power presence walk in. And that included, you know you've got this. You know we've got this. And that was it. Yeah. And I went, Phew. And I think that if we all did that, instead of wearing our shoulders, you know, up high, we would all relax a lot more. Our shoulders would get, if we gave ourselves that second to pause, to ask whatever higher power, if, if it's just your past experience, times I've done well, things that have worked out before, it makes all the difference Absolutely. in the world. And then you can do the big exhale. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to I want to pause for a minute here to point out something. You mentioned your husband a couple of times. Bob Riley. Yes. <laughs> posted. Hi, Hi, honey. My wife Carol is perfect. Oh. Wait. Next one. I'm not kidding. Not in capital letters. 
and a heart eye emoji. Ooh. Aw, honey, that's really sweet. Just remember that because we're going to take a screenshot yes. of that. Now we're going to bring that home. <laughs> that's Aww. fabulous, He's Bob. a good man and a great soul. He really is a great man and a great soul. Uh, we're getting some some good engagement here on, on social media. And so I think I'm going to extend out the live part a little bit. We give him a little more? Let's give him more. Give, let's what give do him, you people want to know? Let's give him some more. Let's, let's dive into the rest of the agenda because, wow, I love this. I love this. I love this. Okay. The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder and it's epic, which means this is something you shouldn't miss. Registration opens on December 15th and we are beginning January 15th. This music is so loud, that means it's amazing. Join us, theleadershipexp.com for details. You don't want to miss this. So Holy Trinity, we talked about, now let's move on to college and, and your career. So I, I read a couple of conflicting things. So this I want to... Um, I want to clarify. So I know you went to NYIT for your mm -hmm. undergrad, and you had that honorary doctorate. Did you also attend Nassau and the University of Dayton? Yeah, I went to Holy Trinity, and when I graduated from Holy Trinity in 1972, um, I applied to uh, Fairfield University. My cousins from Garden City, boys, two boys older than me, two years and three years older, had gone there. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to visit with my friends, and it was Fun. We got our licenses. We drove to Fairfield. It was the time of our lives. And I got accepted. It was either the first or second year that they were accepting women, which okay. was fabulous. And I showed my parents the letter, and they said, that's great. Of course, you can't afford to go there. You know, we don't have that. Dad was in the military for 20 sure. years, so we're still on catch-up. You can go to Nassau Community College like your brother. And it wasn't like... It, it is today where we all just say, well, let's just add to that student debt. In so many ways, my stumbling blocks have become my stepping stones. So I went to Nassau Community College for two years. I did kickline for Holy Trinity. I did kickline in Nassau Community College. So it was kind of my entrance to a great part of the student body there. It was so much fun. I learned a lot. I would say my two best college teachers, the ones who I remember most, two of the three, um, were Bernie Katz. I took three of his four psychology courses. He was amazing. He's a therapist, or I, I guess a psychologist from Plainview. Uh, and he was amazing. The first day he walked into class, and he's talking to a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids, and he said, you know what? You're crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> and he looked at all of us, and he said, we all have our crazies. And that's how he started. And I thought, I love this guy. So I took him three out of my four semesters. Joe Dundero. Joe taught, he was a phys ed and health teacher, and Joe taught that very controversial course, which was supposed to teach people who are 18, 19, 20 years old about their sexuality, about safe sex, about, and it was very controversial. Sure. You know, we weren't supposed to talk about that then. Right. But Joe was bold, and he did, and, and he was amazing. So I went to Nassau for two years. Um, then I was trying to decide where to go when it came to the next two years. And my mom was pretty smart. She never had the ability to go to college, but she was so bright and she said, let's not talk about what you want to do because you probably don't know. Let's talk about what you like. And I said, I love people. My kindergarten report card says she loves to talk. So <laughs> I love to talk. Um, I love to write. And she said, oh, maybe you should be an attorney like Uncle Jim, my godfather. And I said, I don't think so, because Uncle Jim talks a lot about all the solitary time that he spends with books, and that would make me crazy. So 
I decided that I would go into public relations. There were not a lot of women in radio, and certainly not in television at the time. You know, there was Barbara Walters, but there were not a lot. So I went, I applied to University of Dayton in Ohio because one of my best friends from high school had ended up there, and I thought, well, I could have fun there. And um, I applied to New York Institute of Technology as a backup because mm -hmm. I did want to go away. Got accepted to Dayton. I went August. We spent nine days out there having a lot of fun. We were living in the same house together, Joanne and I. And I went to register two days before classes started. And they said, oh, you, you have to be here for three years. And I said, no, I don't. You took all my credits except my two gym credits from Nassau. And they said, no, no, you're missing microeconomics, macroeconomics. Oh, wow. oh boy. And I said, I can't do this. And Eek. I called New York Tech. And I said, do you still have my spot and my scholarship? And they said, yes. And I packed up my car and I drove home. Wow. Oh, wow. I was heartbroken. And so I did the first semester of my junior year at New York Tech. And that's where I had to, as a public relations major in the communications department, I had to take Radio 101, Television 101, sure. Communications Law, all these writing courses. My Radio 101 course was taught by my third favorite college teacher, Neil Martin. And Neil was a disc jockey at WBAB in Babylon. Our final project was a 15-minute radio show. You had to know how to engineer the board. You had to know the law behind wow. it, public service announcements, commercials. And you had to write and deliver a five-minute newscast in that. That was my final project. He used to tell me all the time, you're so good, you're so good. Well, New York Tech was 92% men, 8% women at the time. So any woman was good. I mean, we sure. just were good because we weren't the guys. Sure. Right. And what he didn't tell me was he took my final project to WBAB in Babylon when I was 20 years old, and they offered me a job. Oh, incredible. Wow. And I was waitressing in a place called the Salty Dog, and I said, no thanks, I'm making a whole lot of money. I don't need, you know, to do that kind of work. And they said, we're talking about doing on-air work news. Yeah. Now, this is December of my junior year. So wow. now I've been rejected by Dayton. I've come back home. I've done this year here. And I said, I'll take the job. And then I thought, nope, I need to go away. And University of Dayton contacted me and said, we screwed up. We put you in the School of Business. You were never supposed to take all those economics and math oh. courses. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was an oh wow to me because those were not my strengths. Whoa. So I decided to go back there. So I ended up in Dayton the second half of my junior year. So you turned down the job at BAB. In December. And you I went out to Ohio. Back to Ohio, take two. Had a great time. Moved back into that house. Had a fabulous time. And I couldn't get on to the radio station. I thought, oh, and I'm going to get on the radio station there because somebody in New York wants me. Wow. And those positions were filled. And so I ended up, uh, at the end of the school year, coming back and contacting somebody at BAB and saying, listen, if you still have that little part-time job, I'll take it. And they said, we have it because we haven't found anybody to work for, you know, $2 an hour or whatever, right. um, who has the voice and has the caliber that you do. And so I took it. And I never went back to Dayton to get my trunk full of sheets and butterfly towels. Oh, jeez. But it was an incredible stumbling block that became one of the greatest stepping stones of my life. Wow. Wow. So did the internship at, at BAB begin once you returned back, or was that the original? It wasn't an internship. It wasn't an internship. It was part-time news. Okay. Oh, it wasn't an internship. They offered me a job doing weekend news at WBAB, and two afternoons a week I did some of their public service stuff. Wow. Wow, wow that's on the incredible. Weekend. Wow. It was amazing. I mean, for me to be working in the business at the age of 20 on air and 
then senior year, I stayed in New York, I stayed on Long Island, I was living with my parents, and I went back to New York Institute of Technology. Wow. And I finished there. Wow, incredible. And so when did you move to WLIR? Um, I went from WBAB, which had a very small news department. It was me, a part-time fellow named Sean Burke. Wow, that was a reach. And Joel Martin was the news director. But it was rock and roll radio. I knew there were limits to what we were doing. And back in the days before News 12, before there was this hyper-local, we're going to be your newspaper, but on television or in radio, there were a couple of Long Island radio stations that did that job. WGBB in Merrick, WGSM in Huntington. You used to see their call letters on the building right at Route 110 in the Northern State Parkway. There's a building on the north That's side. Right. Yep. WGSM, That's right. WCTO. And then WALK in Patchogue. Yep. And I knew that I needed to learn more. And so I reached out to WGBB, and the news director there was Ed Grilly, and I brought him my audition tape. And he said to me, if I had a job, I'd hire you tomorrow. And I said, that's great. And that gave me license about once every six weeks, not enough to be annoying, but I would call him about once every six weeks. And I would say, hey, just want you to know, I did a story about this. I went out and I covered that. I did this, I did that. And one day he said to me, I've just got to hire you so you stop calling me. And wow. that was when I went to GBB and I really learned. It was serious. It was a 15-minute solo radio um, news show in the morning. Bill Whitney from the CBS Radio Network eventually sat next to me. Larry Kofsky from Crane's New York Business right. was there. Uh, Howard Liberman, who ended up on WINS and CNBC maybe. Um, uh, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal group of men wow. and me. Wow. Seven of them, one of one me. Of Blazing trails, as wow. always. Blazing trails, as baby. As always. So WLIR, um, I want to talk about this iconic rock-turned new wave station and, and how it influenced your career, because it was a big part of your career, right? It was a huge part of my career, 1979 to 1983. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, John Lennon was killed during that time. That's probably one of the largest news stories that we covered. Um, but my news director, Steve North, also known as my first work husband, um, Steve did a series on drunk driving. And it was the first New York State Associated Press Award for reporting on drunk driving because things were changing. We were evolving. People hadn't been talking about that until then. You know, it used to be, I, mean, I know a lot of people who used to, uh, you know, if you got stopped by a cop, on the way home, no matter where you lived in the country, pull over and sleep it off, or it, it sure. was different. The awareness across the line was not what the awareness is today. My kids are in their 20s, and then I have an older one in his 30s, and, um, and they will not, any of the three of them, they will not get in a car if somebody, you know, w with somebody who's been drinking. There's always a designated driver, or there's Lyft, or Uber, or us, yeah. Right. You know, they're real smart. Yeah. So, But it was a lot of fun, too. I mean, we just interviewed so many rock stars. I was with B.B. King, you know, in New York City in this little, th this little dressing room where it was him and his guitar, who was the greatest love of his life. And I thought at the time, you know, you don't know your living history when you're living it. That's yeah. right. What do they say? That youth is wasted on the young? Yes. yes. You know, so I, I didn't get it all. But it was a phenomenal, phenomenal time, um, I would rather, you heard me refer to my love of music before, I would much rather know about the musician 
than about the music. And that's why Steve and I made a good balance in the yeah. news department. I love to ask people about, um, you know, about their lives, about how they got to where they were. One day I was in the newsroom, and I did mornings, and Steve did afternoons. And I bent down to pick something up, and there was a big glass wall which led into the studio where the DJs were. And you, so you could always see each other. And I leaned down to pick this up, and I stood up and said to myself, I thought, um, God, who is that? That is the ugliest man I had ever seen. <laughs> and Steve happened to walk in, and he said, that's Frank Zappa. Oh, man. <laughs> who was a nice guy? Yes. He was a little out there, but he was a nice guy. I would never have said that to his face. Yeah. yeah. I have a quote from Steve. So I read a great piece that you actually uh, referred me to that Steve North wrote about you. Really, really great yeah. piece. Yeah. A uh, lot of love there. Uh-huh. I saw it. I saw it. He's still my work husband. Yeah. Aww. He said, during our time together, we interviewed politicians, newsmakers, and rock stars, reported on the 1980 Democratic Convention and the shootings of the Pope, Ronald Reagan, and John Lennon, hung out with Billy Joel and his band, and essentially had the time of our lives. It really seemed like that. I checked out Dare to be Different, the documentary about WLIR. So it was people that grew up on Long Island. You know, LIR was was legendary. legendary. It was legendary. Yeah. Um, and so I watched that documentary, and the, the names in that documentary were incredible who came through that station, not just uh, the people that worked there, but, of course, the musicians that came through the station. Um, you got to give me a rock story. You, you have to have a good one. Uh, Joan Jett and, and her manager, Kenny, all of a sudden one day showed up. Um, when, when we did the reunion, when we went to meet about this movie, Dare yep. to be Different, we met with the producer. We were all sitting around in the basement of someplace. I don't know. And it was pretty typical for us to be in a basement. And um, we were all talking about who got mugged. And I was the only one who would never got mugged oh. because I would arrive there at four in the morning and it was near a troubled spot in Hampstead at that time, a place known for drugs. And you'd park in the parking lot, come inside the building um, on Hempstead Turnpike, Fulton Avenue, and you take the mm. elevator to the seventh floor and run up to the eighth or take it to the sixth floor and run up to the seventh, to the penthouse, as we called it. And there weren't much penthouse about that place at all. It was incredible. Um, but anybody could essentially take the elevator up and then walk up that final flight of stairs through the fire escape, you know, entrance onto the roof. Right. And that's how you got up to LIR. And all of a sudden, one day, Joan Jett and her manager, Kenny, showed up. And we started playing their music at a time when other people wouldn't. Dennis McNamara was our program director. And Dennis, who is still a Long Islander, still involved in so much, Dennis just got it. He just had a nose for it. He put them on. I love rock and roll. And we, therefore, became their friends forever. Bono still talks about how WLIR would play his music when nobody else did. And so Dennis McNamara, this Long Island uh, DJ, disc jockey, is a hero to Bono. And you too now. That's uh, you crazy. Know, it's right. right? <laughs> and it was crazy. just every day for you. It, it wasn't, was every day. It was just every day. It's not like you intentionally went in and said, we're going to have the courage to play Joan Jett. You played it because it was good music and you had a nose for this good music. Uh, I didn't have that nose. I've well, got to give that to Dennis McNamara. Dennis, also, yeah. Rosie um, worked in our music department and she worked doing some of our public relations and our you know marketing stuff. She had a great collection of music that she gave to Dennis one day and said, you really ought to listen to this stuff. It's kind of the next generation. It's the next wave. And that became a lot of the new wave stuff, which, by the way, for some traditional rock and roll lovers was, you know, was hard 
It, it was hard. A lot of the guys who play the classic vinyl are in serious now. You yeah. know, the Dennis sure. Ellis's. I mean, those guys who had been through LIR, and then they were over on Fordham's radio station for years. They've moved over to Sirius because they loved that music. So that classic rock and roll. But WLIR really did introduce this different way of thinking. And Dennis was ballsy. Yeah. Um, he went over to London, and he listened to what was being played there and then bought some albums and brought them back. Oh. And then he had the albums sent here before they were technically released here. And that's some of what we played. Sure. And that's how, like there are people who went to school in Jersey or in Staten Island, and if you were close enough to the water, if your dorm was close enough to the water, you could get the LIR signal, and they loved it. People would fight for those rooms. So it was a crazy, incredible time. I, I was at the Democratic National Convention on the last night, Pictures weren't so big then because it was radio, and I wish I had this picture. I was the last person in Madison Square Garden waiting outside the CBS broadcast booth, and I interviewed Walter Cronkite after wow. his last broadcast, and wow. it was phenomenal, his last convention broadcast, and I knew that that was history. I was fully wow. aware of that one. It, it was incredible to be in that presence. Now that I think about it, he might have been my age. That's incredible. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Probably not, Ugh. because at that point I wasn't saving everything. I was doing it and moving on, and right. I was doing it and right. moving on. Steve may. Steve has everything. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, you know, it's it's interesting to to, to hear about um, the dichotomy of the, the, the news aspect of LIR versus the music, right? Because it was just known as a cult music station. Right. Um, but being able to bring that news into it, uh, which not only sort of broadens the range of, of the network itself, of the station itself, but um, the content is a little more broken up. It's not just about the music. I always, I'm so fascinated by radio um, and, and how it's grown over the years. We've talked about how I'm a huge fan of, of Howard Stern as, as an right. interviewer. And I always hear his stories about radio back in the 70s and 80s and how he would just jump from station to station. And it was always like, it, it was a formula. It was just, hey, I just want to make 250 bucks a week. And it's uh, just get on there, play records, shut your mouth, that's it. Mm -hmm. But he always tried to make it interesting. He always tried to bring new content into it. Um, so when a station actually achieves that, that cult status, that's tough. That's it was tough. amazing. We used to do something called mini close-ups. And, and you, know, right. you asked how WLIR affected my career. Um, I could not do a story about the consumer price index because nobody would care. Right. But I could do a story, and this is the kind of thing that I've taught my writers at News 12 for all these years. Don't do the consumer price index story. Nobody cares. But say, listen, that date this weekend could cost you four bucks more, which was a lot in 1979 or 1980. It's going to cost you more because meat's up and the milk that could go in your coffee and guess what, beer too. And that's right. where I learned to make every story relational working with that. And we would take these stories and we would mix them in with music. I mean, it was so fun. There, there was a lot of Monty Python in our mini close-up. Those were the recorded um, specials that we aired every single day. And they were so much fun. I'd go into the city. I happen to love Kenny Rankin. A lot of people don't know who he is, but I, he's got a certain kind of voice that just loved Kenny Rankin. And I could go into the city and just interview him. I could make a phone call and meet you know, almost anybody who I wanted to meet. And it was such an exciting way to grow up. It really was all because somebody hired me back in the day. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that set up, um, you know, the experience that you took into TV eventually. What, what's, 
What did you take from radio into television? I think the people who work in radio first have an ease. You know, I, I'll look at young reporters sometimes, and or even young writers, and I'll see that you know they want to try and be a little bit like New York Timesy or a little Walter Cronkitey or, or look grown up. Mm-hmm. You know, come across as grown up. Sure. And what I learned very easily is that people want to talk about what they want to talk about. They want to talk about life. You know, right. like we it should be relatable. And that's really what I learned there is to be relatable. And that's how every story, you know, Elizabeth Hashagen said that. Um, News 12 did an incredible week of send-off for me the last week that I was on the air there. And that's one of the things that she said. And when I was inducted into the um, Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame, she said the same thing. Carol will not let a story go unless it's relatable. I just think it's so important. You don't want to be bored. Right. So what do you want me to tell you about? Do you want me to tell you about that, um, well, the tax bill is going up, 0.03? No, you don't care about that. Hey, guess what? You could be paying 37 more dollars a year, a month, just for this. And instead of spending that money on what you might want, that might be a night out with a family. That might be a night at the movies with your family. People want to be able to relate. Sure. I I believe in being real. Yeah. People really want to identify with stories. They want to identify with how is this going to impact my life. Mm -hmm. They don't want to hear about data and statistics. They want to know how is this going to affect how I buy groceries for my family or what vacation we can go on together or what is this doing to my life. I think that's so important. Being relatable, finding the story that's going to touch every single viewer or listener, I think it's just so important. That's the greatest thing that rock and roll radio gave me. It really was. Plus a lot of concerts. I used to go to concerts for work. I mean, it was amazing. Incredible. Yeah, well, it's it's that authenticity. And so it's a real it's a real good course in a crash course in authenticity. Yeah. Um, you know, bringing it back to leadership for a minute. This is something that I've discovered over the years. You know, what, if I'm doing a consult with my company and I'm, let's say, uh, training a sales force at a uh, at an organization, um, and, and people ask me what that secret to sales is, it's it's just being yourself. You know, now that I've been on the stage for a few years and I do my my TED talks and keynotes, um, and, and subsequently organizing a TEDx event with with uh, Jennifer. Um, you know, you, when you train a speaker and and you see that it's sort of that contrived feeling up on stage and they ask you, well, how do I get rid of that? Well, you, you got to be yourself. And yeah. so authenticity in leadership is what engages people. People are not stupid. They They know, even if they don't know you, they know the second you start talking who the real you is. Right. Right. And when you don't sound like you and you're so- trying to sound like somebody else, whether it's on a stage, on the radio or on TV... They get it, yep. you know. They see it, and it's it's important that that we learn to be our authentic selves in order to to create change, to do good things. And you know what's great about it? Once again, it's a big exhale. It's relaxing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said yeah. in the kudos that came in the last few weeks that I was at News Twelve. A lot of people said, by the way, who she is on camera, who you see, that's who she is in everyday life. But it, you know, you don't have to turn it on. And you don't have to turn it off. And I think it makes you a better you. That's the beauty of it. You know, it really does. It makes you a better person. So it works from both sides. It doesn't just make you a better anchor, a better salesperson. It makes you also a better you, a, a better person. And, and that's easy. I agree. I agree. It could be exhausting trying to be somebody a, else. A somebody else. Yep. It could just be yep. physically exhausting. I would never be able to hold up two personas. 
what you get is what you get through and through. And I think that's what people really see. What did I say when I came back in here from your bathroom just now? We took a quick break and I said, oh, by the way, you, you don't have any more rolls of toilet paper. Yeah. In there. Because <laughs> it's mean, real. Right. Because it's all it's family real. here. There you go. <laughs> it's all but it's all family everywhere yeah. if you let it be. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Got the LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, it's me. Guys, the music's getting louder, which either means that this is a can't-miss epic course or that Fabrizio fell asleep at the controls again. This music is so damn loud, and that means it's going to be amazing, and that Fabrizio's pay is definitely getting docked this week. Join us, the Leadership EXP for details. You don't want to miss this. 12 years in radio, right? Uh, yeah, I would say. About I 12. started in 1975, and I moved over to television. I might even be a little more. There was some overlap. And I moved over to television in March of 1987. 87. Well, I was in TV before that, though, really, starting in... in um, Chuck Dolan is a genius. Charles Dolan, who started We're cable vision. Oh my gosh, a phenomenal person. And one of the things that he started, besides cable television, was he started something called Studio 14. Because imagine having 37 channels to choose from at night. Who will ever be able to decide what to watch? <laughs> and he put together this on camera channel. Channel 14, we called it Studio 14. And we got on the air and we talked about what's on, what channel at what time. And we yes. would help plot out your month. If you watch this movie on the Moonfeed channel tonight, then on home box office tomorrow, you can watch this and you can. It was all done. Oh my God, I remember this. I now. remember this. Channel well, that 14. was me. That was channel me. 14 was the guy. Yes. Channel 14. Channel oh 14 was the that, guide. We're having a moment, George. That was wow. it. You're having an aha moment. That and that was, was me. That yeah. was back when. The, the, I don't even want to call them remote controls, the clickers. Do you remember the brown the box? Brown it was a brown box, and it had three buses. It had a top level yeah. from left to right, a middle level, and a bottom level, and it was wired to your television. And if somebody ran through the room, you'd say, don't trip on that, don't trip on that. That's and that yeah. was the year we moved to Long Island from Flushing, 1987. Oh, boy. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And I started working there in 1983. Okay. 1983. Yeah, there was, right. And so... 1987, you start as a field reporter for six days. Uh, can I take you back? Sure. Okay. So I'm working in radio. Uh -huh. Now I'm working at Cablevision at Studio 14 with Ray White, one yeah. of the WLIR disc jockeys, and a woman named Carolyn Russell. Carolyn okay. was a Palmolive girl. She had been in advertising. She was an actress. In fact, one day we were doing a promo, and... We never worked together in the studio at Studio 14 at the same time. We would take different nights that we'd work. And we're doing a promo for it that it was going to run on other cable channels to tell everybody, come to us on 14. We'll sort out your month. You'll never get lost with us at your helm, at your television helm. And um, Ray White, who I knew from LIR and who I knew from when we weren't on the air, Ray White said what he had to say. And then I said what I had to say. And then Carolyn Russell, who I'd never been in the studio with, and she was a sweet girl, but Carolyn Russell did her thing. And all of a sudden, I realized that that voice that she used on the air was the exact same voice that she had used when she said hello. And I started laughing so hard because she was 
that she was a Palmolive girl yeah. person, <laughs> really across the spectrum. And it was so hysterical that somebody actually submitted the video of us trying to shoot that promo to America's Funniest Home Videos. And for years, I got royalties on that. Wow. <laughs> because I totally could not hold it together. Wow. So anyway, here I am. I'm working at Studio 14. And I find out this, uh, Chuck is going to start the next great thing, mm. Chuck Dolan. And he believes that 24-hour regional news network is the way to go. And so he creates News 12 Long Island. And there were critics who said, you'll never fill 24 hours. Are you kidding? Now, already Ted Turner was doing it with CNN, but you're not going to do it with something hyper-local. But we realize the best news is the news that's closest to home, right? All news is local if you do it the right way. So... I auditioned in 1986 mm -hmm. for News 12, which was going to start in December of 1986. I was brought in on Labor Day to audition. The news director, John, I thought, oh, this guy must love me. He's bringing me in on Labor Day. Definitely I've got the job. I didn't get the job, but I continued to work in the building with those people in December as they started on the air. And that was kind of a kick in the pants. Sure. I was working right. in radio. I was the only full-time woman anchor on radio at that point. I really knew the stuff, and I hadn't gotten the job. And it was doubt, and it was disappointment and frustration. And I just shared the same ladies' room with the ladies there. Oh. And one of my former interns from WLIR had gotten a weekend anchor job oh. there. Oh, and I hadn't man. even gotten a reporter's job there, which is less airtime. And then... In February, the Nassau County Bar Association, because I had a pretty good reputation, invited me to be on a panel. And it was going to be three attorneys against three journalists. And we were going to talk about um, whether cameras and microphones belonged in the courtroom. So here we are. It's March. It's 1987. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about law. So I spent a couple of weeks in the law library. Mm -hmm. And I photocopied, mimeographed some of the pages out of the law. Then out of the law books. Then, you know, there weren't those little stickies that you can buy now, sticky post-it that you can, mm -hmm. so out of, you know, here my Catholic school training came into view. Scissors, different colored pens, different color paper, um, and little scissors, and I made tabs on all this different case law for anything that could possibly come up about the rights to a fair trial versus free press. I did the debate that night, and at the end of it, Stephen Scaring, who was a young assistant district attorney in Nassau County, came up to me and said, you were amazing. You were awesome. You kicked butt. And then he said, why aren't you on that News 12? <laughs> and I said, don't ask me. Ask him. Ask him. And I pointed to the man next to me who was the new news director at News 12. And I said to Norm Fine, you will have a new tape and a new resume on my desk tomorrow. Or I will have it, excuse yeah, me, sure. on your desk tomorrow. You will have mine on your desk tomorrow. And the next day he hired me. And six days later, he had me anchoring. Wow. And that wow. was the beginning. Wow. Yep. And That's incredible. You know, and, and, and when I think about it, the reason for it was that I was so disappointed, but I didn't quit. Mm -mm. Because there's no room to quit. There's no room for a Silva to quit. You don't give up. Nope. You just don't quit. You, you could be disappointed. Time that pity party. Ready, right. set. And that wasn't a military thing. That was an optimism thing. That's how we grew up in the house. Yeah, you have every right to feel sorry for yourself. Okay, what are you going to do now? Right. And what I was going to do was continue to work hard. And that turned into an incredibly successful television life. So I, th I think I know the answer to this, but I had found this in my research. There's a rejection letter hanging mm. on the wall of your office. 
I love it. Now, that rejection letter was from 1983 when uh, Cablevision was also starting something called Long Island Exchange. It was a magazine show, I think 60 Minutes, but super sure. hyper local. Mm-hmm. And I love that letter because it always reminds me that somebody's rejection of me does not mean the end of me. Yeah. And I keep it in the lucite frame that I put it in back then. As a reminder, I don't know that I would call it inspiration, but as a reminder, and the frame is cracked in the front, and it's pushed in, you know, it's those old lucite things where the cardboard fits in the back, and you mm-hmm. could, you know, kind of unfurl, kind of crack out the um, the stand for it to lean it back, and it's broken in the back, and that's where it belongs. It belongs broken and original to remind me that you just keep going when there's disappointment. Yeah. You've and got to. You've got to move forward. You do. I sometimes would take that to school talks with me, that and my first Emmy Award, and say people are going to tell you no all the time. You decide what no means to your life. Yeah, that's great. That's great, Carol. Um, now, I, I, I was I was younger at the time, but I, I, I was a TV head, so I think I understood the landscape of television uh, at the time. And looking back now at, at you know historical records of how things worked back then, um, it's crazy to me how's this thing how this thing succeeded this news 12 this idea of news 12 and you you really helped pioneer as the face right because there's there's the organization and then there are the faces that right. are out there you helped pioneer the idea behind hyperlocal news like 24 hour local coverage how is that even possible especially when you think about the times there was no internet Right. You know, there was no the the you think about how much information is exchanged now on a minute to minute basis versus mm-hmm. back then on a day to day basis, right? That didn't exist. And so how how did that work? Right? Like how did that wh- what are your feelings on why that was successful and for my my real question is not only as a as a broadcaster answering this question but as a woman. I want you to answer that question. There's so many pieces to that. First of all, Chuck Dolan is a genius. Yeah, he knew what people wanted when he created. You know, when he wired the first buildings in Manhattan, said we can get you better television uh, reception. We'll wire them. We'll call it cable. But I know you won't just buy that. And he then said, I'll I'll give you something to go along with it. And he created a little company called HBO Home Box Office. So it was his genius. Number one, I think I was a good pick, and I was a good pick because. I love my life. I love my Long Island life. You picked the right person for that job. You know, my managers um, say, and and no, this is not a humble brag, Shane. Ego, mom. My (laughs) managers would say, um, nobody does breaking news like I do. But I know the island so well. Helpful with that was going to a regional high school. I didn't go, I wasn't just a Daler, although being a Daler is fabulous. Yes, it is. But besides that, George, I, I was, um, I mean, Jennifer, you know, you're a Daler, but you're also regional. Okay, yeah. So I learned, I, I learned more about places on the island. Heck, I dated a lot. And so I went different places. Sure. Um, I'm curious. So I went different places. I, my grandmother used to talk to everybody in the grocery store and sometimes it made me a little bit bored. But she wanted to know about people. And my mom wanted to know about people. And I want to know about people. And so that was such an advantage for me. I love the water. I was a lifeguard as a kid. I I swam when I was 10 years old, uh, LSA, Levittown Swimming Association. The Levitt put 
uh, William Levitt put pools in all of those communities. So I swam. So I went to other communities to swim. I swam in Holy Trinity. In fact, my Holy Trinity swim coach was inducted into the Long Island Journalism Hall of Fame the same day that I was, Pat Milton, really? who I still call coach. She is an executive producer on 60 Minutes. Oh, is that wow. phenomenal? That's right? Fantastic. Yeah. She called me recently. Coach and I have to get together in January because now <laughs> I have time. Um, but... So how did it work? It, it worked because there were enough of the right people in place, and I'm the people who stayed for 33 years there on the anchor desk. So it's curiosity, it's love of where we live. Those are the people who endure, I think, you yeah. know, those who love where we are and what we do. Jennifer, we were talking about it before. Uh, Long Island is a city. Yeah. I mean, we have a larger population than a lot of cities do, three million Absolutely. people. and. I honor that, and I love it, and I respect it. And, you know, as a woman, how did I do it? I just kept working hard, and it wasn't easy all the time. You know, there was one person in particular in my career um, who did not my, want my career to go the way that it has, and I just kept doing the right thing. And when you endure and you just keep doing the right thing, you kind of end up the winner. Yeah. Yeah. So in the early days that you were at Channel 14 and Channel 12, how do you how did you come together as a family to anchor? Because it looks, from my perspective, it looks like a gigantic family. And it looks so easy. But I know it's so incredibly not easy. And you really have to have that cohesion together. Elizabeth and Elisa and Rich talk all the time about how I taught them about family. I mean, they said it in the last weeks. They, I chose Elizabeth and Lisa to introduce me in the Friars Club in New York City um, in, when I was inducted into the Silver Circle for the Emmys for Natus. And I, I, got, I guess I have to credit my mom because I learned to think about other people and to do for other people. And that's what I did at work. And I forever have used the term you get the family you get and the family you choose. That's right. Mm -hmm. I taught my children that when they were little, and that's what I brought to work. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be one to say, I, I said Chuck Dolan brought in the right people. I was one of them because I love Long Island. But Elizabeth and Elisa talk about um, how I brought family to the morning show. They both joined the morning show after I was there, but what a family thing it was. And when I was diagnosed in September, actually Elisa brought everybody into her office and said, listen, any differences we've had, any, anything that goes aside right now, we are pulling together as the family that Carol has helped us create, and we're going to do all this right until she gets back here. And what a great way to work. Yeah. But that means you have to stop and breathe. The, you know, you can't just snap and say the wrong thing to people. Um, you know, with, in my marriage, I say I've never called my husband a name except once. Just the coolest jets, just once. <laughs> and it was because I never wanted to fight about calling him a name. Yeah. Because then we would be so off course from what it was that we needed to discuss. Yeah. And the same thing is true at work. You know, in 10, 20 years, people are not going to remember what you said to them. They will always remember how you treated, treated them. them. That's yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned something before that I wanted to touch on, and then I'll, I'll go back. Um, Long Island. Long Islanders have 
a particular affinity for you, I think, as, as an audience member, because you're our anchor, right? Yeah. Um, there's a big difference to me, to your credit, for helping to build uh, the following you know, behind hyperlocal news, but there's a big difference between the regional network anchor and our very own hyperlocal anchor. Uh, and so because of that, we knew that you felt the emotions that we felt when the big news was happening in our area, right? right. And so right. I think that's why you had... Um, you know, better engagement and a, and a good following, and you were here for 33 years doing this, um, and that's why you're you are a legend on Long Island for what you do. You really are. Um, you took the ride with us as a leader. You know, the ones that you're one of the ones that not only tell the story, but you're a part of the story. You know, and so I think that's really important. So, being that we're talking about Long Island in New York. There are two stories that hit home to me as a New Yorker that I want to talk about, and I'm um, I'm fascinated with broadcasting both radio and TV in, in this respect. 9-11, I mm-hmm. want to talk about. Talk about broadcasting on 9-11 and, and the feelings and the emotion behind that day. Doug Geed was my anchor at the time. Um, Sorry, by the way, I just teared up for absolutely no reason, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> with good reason. And it wasn't just the legend. Um, it, it was the 9-11 reality. Doug Geed was my anchor at the time, and we had these Jets cheerleaders coming in. They were more like a pep squad, not downright cheerleaders then. And he'd gone outside to do something with them, so it was near the end of the hour, and all of a sudden, and I, and I was anchoring some other stories as he was walking outside, and my producer said in my ear, oh my God, we think a small plane has hit one of the World Trade Towers. And I said, all right, get me whatever you can, whatever you can, whatever you can. And eventually we went to it, and we went to the devastation. Yeah. You know, I've grown up on Long Island. I've grown up in Nassau County. One of the saddest things to me still is the story of the cars that were left in the Manhasset parking lot and the Rockville Center parking lot. For days and days, those cars sat there. I'm getting chills when I'm thinking about it. Me too, yeah. It was so devastating. War is devastating, and it was an act of war. It was so horrifying, and our vulnerability was incredible. But when the towers went down, so did the communication towers on the top. And so people couldn't get regular television. Um, Peter King, Congressman Peter King, called us from Washington because he was in Washington, Seaford based at the time. and, well, that is where he lives, but, but he was went all the way up to the North Shore at, at the time. That's where his district was. And he wanted to know what was going on. And he wasn't the only one who called. People called with their stories, and we became the hearth. We spent days and days saying, all right, call. Let us know your story. Let us know who it is that you, are you looking for somebody? And we spent days where that's, what we became, because if you do it right, you really do belong to the people. You know, the public airwaves belong to the people, and just the fact that you're cable doesn't mean you don't belong to the people, and the people have a right. And it showed me how important News 12 was. We were the town criers, literally, in the small village that was Long Island. Uh, It showed me the importance of what News 12 was like nothing else. And yet it's intimate. It's not the tri-state area. It's intimate. It's us. You know, we say not Brooklyn, Babylon. And 
It was an incredible honor. The first thing our management did was come around to each one of us and say, do you have anybody in the city? Do you have anybody? And I did. My husband, who was working, I don't know if he was at NBC or ABC at the time. And um, I remember, he was at ABC at that time. And I said, he's on a train. I haven't heard from him. Eventually, I heard from him. But they were great at taking care of us as the News 12 family, but we still had to go on and do our job, like the cops and the firefighters and the nurses and the dentists and you know all the volunteers who went in. We had to keep doing our job. That was our job, to help where we could, to reassure where we could, that, it, that at some point, someday, we are going to be, in some respect, on the other side of this. Yeah. And we've gotten to a new reality, but we are on the other side of that. We needed that reassurance. We did. Yeah. Um, as the spouse of an FDNY firefighter, we just were glued to News 12 because you held it together at a time where we were falling apart. Mm-hmm. And we just needed that hope. Yeah. yeah. And it was everybody's to have. It was rightfully everybody's to have. I remember <clears throat> at the time... Um, the, the two things really, really stuck out of me uh, at the time. One was just that feeling of going from one day where, and I was, I was still in college at the time, so I didn't really know much about the world yet. But I do know the difference between the day before and the day after, mm-hmm. and then the feeling of unity that came, right, which was a really comforting feeling. Um, but there was something in the world that had to sort of be that unifying factor. And for, for me, and I think a lot of people, that was TV. Um, TV did that for us. And I, and I remember years later just doing the research on this, watching Dave Letterman's um, broadcast, watching uh, Howard's broadcast, watching you know every major news anchor's broadcast and how they handled that because it really was so interesting to me because I remember at the time TV was sort of what – made us feel okay again. Uh, in a way, it was what told us it was okay to start living our lives again. I remember thinking about, well, when are, when are the, the Yankees going to start playing? When are the yeah. Mets going to start playing again? I remember watching the Mets playing the Braves and Mike Piazza ripping a home mm-hmm. run, yeah. and I started crying in right. the middle of it, right? Um, I remember watching the concerts, right? Uh, yeah. The concert for 9-11, mm-hmm. and um, and when friends went back on the air and, and seeing the little sign on Joey and Chandler's apartment that, that there was a little, I don't know if it said we remember or something like that. But things like this, that, they're what made us feel normal again. Yeah. So did you feel a sense of responsibility at the time to bring that normalcy back? Absolutely. Yeah. But, but that was a part of everyday life. Yeah. Because, in, by the way, I am fully wearing chills now. Yeah. Fully. My whole body to go back there. Um, every day in news, you have a responsibility to say it's going to be okay. Right. Because if, if it's a car crash that injures just one person, that's the world to their family. Sure. Yeah. And it's a great observation. So that's something that I was trained for a really long time to do. That's something that just evolved in me. Um, you know, and I go back to my mom. She taught me to think of others. And that's a great resource. It really helps you understand the world if you're thinking of others before you think of yourself. And it made it much easier 
to do that incredibly painful job. But probably my whole life, not just my whole career, had prepared me for that. And when there's a job that you've got to do, then you suck it up and you do that job. You know, like, okay, you had a pity party for how long? You know, I'm talking about me. I'm not telling anybody how long to be devastated about 9-11 because the wound is still a very open wound and the loss is still so real for so many people. But given the position that I was in, I had, I had to go ahead and uh, just do the job. That was my job then. And, you know, it's not that different than what radio was in World War II. Yeah. What you're talking about, that TV gave the comfort and TV brought everybody together, that's exactly what radio did in, for people, for all the Long Islanders. We used to have the largest veterans population of any place in the country on Long Island. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, how many families are waiting for these guys who are now in their 90s waiting for news about them? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that because um, I didn't really understand the gravity of what we had experienced at the time. Not that I'm, I'm not trying to make this interview about 9-11, but it's, it's so important in, in broadcasting, I feel. Um, I didn't really understand the gravity of where we were at the time until I had that time, years, to really reflect on it and think about it. And then two years ago, I was in Hawaii and I visited Pearl Harbor, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, have you ever been there? Jennifer. I have, I have not. Have no. I've yeah. been there. And so it's a really heavy feeling when you go out there and you take the little pontoon onto, you know, right outside of the ship that's that's um, sunk in there. And it's it's the most insane feeling. To, you really understand the vibe and you hear the stories of people that were um, jumping out of the burning boats into the burning water. And you think, well, I remember when people were in a flaming building, jumping yeah. out of a, the 40th story, you know? And and I, w- I remember walking away from that, having a whole new respect for Pearl Harbor, but then having a whole new respect for 9-11, thinking, we we went through that. We experienced something, not, not to compare the two, but we experienced a really major piece of American history that was super traumatic. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, on that level, and, and it really made the whole thing just so much heavier for me. When I went to Pearl Harbor, I remember not a feeling but a knowing that those lives are still there. Yeah. It yes. was a knowing yes. that those lives were still there. Yeah. Not just because I'm a Navy kid, because I'm also my mom's kid. I just knew it. I felt it. And truth be told, I have not yet gone back down to the Freedom Tower or that. I will. This is the year that I will do it. Yeah. Um, but... I, I went, when I covered, I went there, you know, in the months after, but, but not, not since then, not since it's been memorialized and, and rebuilt. But I know that they're still there, that, yeah. that there is some of that life still there. And I, and I think that there's joy in that, that, you know, that some of those great lives are still, there's a spirit there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Being the the hyper local anchor, let's bring it hyper local. Hurricane Sandy. Oof. Yeah, takes me twelve minutes to get to News Twelve from my house, and it took me two and a half hours that morning. Wow! Because there were so I live in the North Shore of Nassau, and there are so many. And the studios in Woodbury, it's twelve minutes away, and there were so many trees and power lines down that I had to drive into. There was nobody out. I had to drive into oncoming traffic lanes. I was driving across grass medians. 
uh, and I finally drove over wires. I was trying to avoid wires because she didn't know what was down. Mm-hmm. And I got to work, and once again, we kicked into gear. One of the most heartbreaking parts of that story for me was we sent Elizabeth Hassagen instead of bringing her into anchor, we sent a camera to her. And she lived in one of the hardest hits communities, hardest hit communities. In, she grew up in Freeport, but she lived in Massapequa. Oh. And she, um, her house was flooded about eight feet up. And I remember when she got to the beginning of her street near Merrick Avenue that she couldn't get down. Yeah. And I remember her crying and on air. And that was the story of so many people. A couple of days later, when she was... Her street was so bad that it's where Peter King took uh, the head of... I know what you're talking housing about. Housing and urban... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't remember who it was that, that went down, but that, that was the national visit, was literally down to Elizabeth Street. A couple of days later, we could go down. So I went with Elizabeth and her dad, and we said it looked like houses threw up on themselves. Yeah. Everything was from the outside. Yeah. And we went into the house to save what we could. We wrapped up all of her dishes, any of the kids' clothing, anything that we could. And we got her to Freeport, to her parents' home. And she moved with her husband and her son, who was in a crib. And I think Allie was about four years old at the time, her daughter. And we, they spent months the entire family living in her childhood bedroom. And her parents were awesome. Her dad's FDNY, retired now. And um, I remember Allie was in the diner one day. They went to the diner in Freeport. And Allie said, you know what, to the waitress, we were devastated. There was devastation. She was four years old. That was the word she kept hearing over and over again. It was the worst of times. And it was the best of times yeah. and how people helped each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was amazing. And that's the kind of thing where we went to the office and we spent days. Now I'm covered in chills. Yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was incredible. And you know what? Some people um, were really great in helping in the rebuilding. And then, you know, you get your charlatans. And we've done those stories, too. I don't know how you can steal from people who are already in such desperate straits, but they will have their reckoning day someday. Um, you know, and damn, we're strong. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we are. We Absolutely. Are and, I, and I love how you, have, how you have talked about this because this really leads into what I want to speak about next. You're a storyteller by <laughs> nature. That's how you do it. That's how you report the news. You don't report the news. You tell our stories, and that's been a theme in your life. Uh, you've been quoted as saying everybody has a story. <sighs> Right? That's so a true. Great line. That's a great line. Why did you choose this role within leadership? Why did you choose to tell other people's stories? And and I want to piggyback that with what is your responsibility as a journalist since you have chosen this role in leadership? What is your responsibility in telling other people's stories? All right. I've got to go to the first part of it. Go and then you're gonna remind me of the yeah. other questions. Um, everybody has a story. And we all have a responsibility to let people tell their story, to let people be heard. We all want to be heard. We want to be heard at home. So we have a responsibility uh, as individuals of developing ourselves in a way that the people around us, in our home, in our school, 
um, where people will listen to us. And that means that we have to teach our children strength, that they have a right to stand up for themselves and speak for themselves, that they have a responsibility to help people who don't know how to speak for themselves how to help stand up for them. That's what I grew up with. So that's why I'm a storyteller. It's my grandmother in the grocery store. Yeah. It's my mother in the grocery store. It's me loving the rock stars' lives more than I love their music, even more than I love their music. It's our oldest, Jason, saying one day to Bob, I hate going to church because it's an hour and a half. And Bob said, no, it's not. Mass is like 45 minutes. And he said, Carol, he's my stepson. And he said, well, Carol, it's 45 minutes mass, and then it's 45 minutes of, you know, saying hello to people. I love people. People are my energy. They're my power. They're my source. But I go back to everybody has a story, and we have a responsibility to stop long enough even to hear just a couple of people in a day or in a week. That's that stopping to tell somebody they've done a good job. That's that stopping to say, you know, well, how did you get here? How did you get to this place? If you think about how we argue so often, you're having an argument with your significant other or somebody at work or one of your children, and all you're thinking about is the next thing you're going to say. I'm going to make the point. I think I have the winning point here. But when you do that, if you choose to do that, you lose the gift of everything that's going to come at you, which may be self-correction. You know, maybe you screwed up. Maybe you were really wrong. Maybe somebody's going to say they were sorry. Maybe somebody's going to say, we just have to leave this alone for now, whatever it is. But you lose that if you're always ready to put out. You have to be open. And when you take that in, that's where the stories then come back out. One of my first mentors in early in my career, Carol Beatty, who has since passed from cancer, said to me, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Right. Just quiet and just let people talk. You have a responsibility to listen and to partner with them and just to make their day and let them be delighted and then get your point of view across. One of the greatest things that I learned as a parent, and it didn't happen until our youngest, Shane, was probably an early teenager. I remember saying to Bob, I figured it out with Shane because all of, you know, your kids are different. And I said, you learn from Shane in the quiet. You learn from Shane in his pauses. Let's not fill his pauses because what comes after the pause tends to be great. And that's that listening thing. And it's hard to do. And especially in this day and age, where it's constant. You know, you get in the car, you put on the radio, you put on the podcast. This one, of course, you should. Always this one. (laughs) Any launch cast. But, you know, we're, we're constantly filling the space, filling the space, filling the silence. And I say, don't be afraid of the silence. I was listening to Joel Olstein on my way here because I'm constantly shoveling in positive to me. And then I said, it's time for silence. And that's when God and I had our little chat that I talked about in the beginning. Did I answer all your questions there, by the way, about being you a storyteller? Really, you really did. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I want to touch on is, so that's, that's you as a storyteller leading into journalism. I want to talk about journalism a little bit um, briefly and the responsibility behind being a journalist along with truth in journalism and what it means to you. Because I think these, these sort of piggyback off each other. We're in a state right now where... Um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, and I don't want to really get into politics too much, but um, 
journalism is being questioned sometimes. A lot um, of times. A lot of times. And rightfully so. Um, and we're, we're in an age where somebody can go on and start a podcast like I did and all of a sudden claim to be an authority on something mm-hmm. or be a journalist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and I think there's, there's a lot more to journalism than that. You know, when I do this, I do this as a, as a thought leader. I'm not doing this as a, as a journalist. I talk to you because I want to talk to you and I want to talk about leadership. Um, but there are people out there that claim to be journalists and they're not. And there's a lot of untruth in journalism, um, a lot of falsehoods right now. And so what is your responsibility as a journalist and how do you feel about truth in journalism? What does it mean to you? My responsibility is to be truthful. My daughter's getting married, April 18th, and she's having her reception at Land's End. We did the food tasting um, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. And the room at Land's End was filled. There were probably, I don't know, 18, 15 tables, and it was different families. So Mm -hmm. it was a bride and groom, parents of the bride, parents of the groom, and then maybe somebody else at the tables. And it was a wonderful day, and it was a total food orgy, which was fabulous. And at the end of it, a fellow came to me from the table behind, and he said, I just want you to know we already miss you so much, because I, my last day on the air was December 20th. And he said he was a Suffolk police officer, and he told me where he was from. And he said, we love to watch you, because you tell the truth. Yeah. Because you, and I said to him, you love me because I love my cops. And he said, no, I, I love you because you tell the truth. And I said, if there's a bad cop, we have to talk about it. If there's a bad news person, we have to talk about it. And, you know, we all have that personal thing where you think it's more true if it's something that you agree with. Sure. So what we have to do now, what we have the choice to do now, is to do some research and to figure out who is telling the truth, find those websites where you can fact check things. I mean, politicians can say anything on any side these days. And the television networks, you know, in particular, the cable news networks all say it's this way. No, 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 it's this way. It's completely. I think we have an obligation to not just watch what reaffirms what you think. As an individual, I don't mean me, the journalist. I mean me, the wife, the mom, the homeowner, that I should be listening to the people who I agree with, and I should definitely be listening to the people that I don't agree with. Um, And I think that we should limit our exposure. I think that in all of that, we also have to feed in, shovel in the positive. I write a monthly article for Long Island Woman magazine, and I happen to have written one around the last presidential cycle, which said, turn off your TV. And I write the articles a couple of weeks before. and. After I wrote it, but before it was published, it was announced that Cablevision was being sold to Altice. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, good Lord, these new managers are going to come in here and they're going to go, oh, that Carol Silva, isn't she the one who just told everybody in print to turn off their TVs? Mm-hmm. But I think that we need to limit what we consume. We all have the choice. We all have the choice not to be angry, but to be informed. And it takes a little bit of work. And we all have the choice to feed in some positive. That's what I choose to do. I can't tell people what to do, but that's what I choose to do. And I, I'm going to say it again. I love my life. Yeah. How did you carry that through to setting the tone for you and the family at, at News 12? Does everybody believe that? Does Yeah, that's an organization. News- that is an organ. That's the standard there. It was with the Dolans. It was at Cablevision. It is with Altice. That's the standard. Yeah. 
because, I mean, I have heard producers who have vastly different political views, and then they write the stories that they have to write. Yeah. That, it's interesting that you mentioned that you uh, you said what you said uh, in your article, and then Altis came in and you oh. right? So, so that's something that really resonates with me a lot. I, I wrote a piece um, a while back, and I'll give you a copy before you leave because I'd love for you to read it and give me your feedback on it. Um, have you ever seen Jerry Maguire with um, Tom Cruise? I never saw the whole thing. Okay, so I, I'm sorry, but I've gotten up between. <laughs> 3.30 and 2.15 in the morning for the better part Perfect. of 44 gotcha. years. Yeah. And, and you know, except if I was on vacation, usually doing something else or having a baby. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, I gotcha. have a lot of catching up okay. to do. So, so Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise, the brief rundown is he's a sports agent. He's a slimy sports agent, one of the biggest agents in the world. Show me the money. Show me the money, mm-hmm. right? I know that. And so um, the, towards the, the beginning of the movie, uh, has a moment where he just realizes that he's turned into a slime ball. Has a moment with the child of one of his athletes. Um, and so goes to bed at night, and whether he had a bad slice of pizza or he grew a conscience overnight, wakes up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and decides to write his mission statement, which is entitled, The Things We Think and Do Not Say, The Future of Our Business. And he goes on to write things like, it's about less clients, less money, more caring, right? Um, and he writes this mission statement and he distributes it, uh, the memo, to everybody in his company. And then he wakes up the next morning and goes, oh, my God, what did <laughs> I do? What did I just do? You know, and, of course, he gets fired because of it because how can you be a big-time agent and not care about money? Um, and it resonated with me because one day, uh, a little over three years ago, um, I was sitting in my office one in the morning. You know, I had a lot of work going on, and I just got inspired to start writing about something. And so I decided to write my version of the things we think and do not say. And it's the same ideology where I I realize that as a business owner, I can do more. It doesn't have to be all about profit, right? It could be more than just profit in this world. And so I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, and it's nothing big. It's a 12-page little manuscript. Um, it took me about two and a half years to distribute that to people, to be brave enough to send that Why? out to people. It, first of all, it wasn't finished. I wrote the first 10 pages in about, you know, an hour and a half. It took me almost two years to write the last two pages because the story wasn't over yet. Right. Not that the story's over. it was over. the beginning of the growth. It was the beginning of the growth. And I think at that point I had understood the growth. And not only did I understand it, but I was brave enough to say it out loud. And I knew that as a thought leader, um, as somebody that maybe people look to for advice sometimes, that it would be important for me to be authentic and, and honest about that. So I, I commend you for being that person because that's something we need. You know, it's something, especially in our journalists. Absolutely. You know, honesty. Absolutely. Honesty. Um. The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder and it's epic, which means this is something you shouldn't miss. Registration opens on December 15th and we are beginning January 15th. This music is so loud, that means it's amazing. Join us, theleadershipexp.com for details. You don't want to miss this. I want to take a break from your career for a second. Okay. 
your husband, Bob, who's, who was on Facebook supporting us, <laughs> supporting you. Hi, Annie. I don't want to kid myself. It wasn't about us. <laughs> no, it wasn't about us at all. Supporting the, the beautiful, legendary Carol Silva. Uh, your son, Shane, your daughter, Connor, right? And Jason. And, and Jason, your stepson, right. Um, I don't really call him my stepson. I call him one of our kids. Love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was nine when I got there. Yeah, so. love that. And um, he's 39. These, these people are your rock. This is your foundation. They right? are. What is the biggest difference between Carol at the desk and Carol at home? That if I asked Bob and Shane and Jason and, and Connor. They'd probably say not much. Seriously. Um, because I have high standards at work and I have high standards at home, uh-huh. which they didn't always love. Um, I have that we can do anything attitude at work and that we can do anything attitude at home. Um, I mean, there's more makeup, there are more dresses, there are more high heels at work. But besides that, I, 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 was, I was in the car one day. Did you ever see Jessica's Affirmation? No. You've got to look it up. Oh, okay. you're going to love this, George. Okay. Jessica's Affirmation. Jessica's a little girl, and her mom, I believe, posted video of her standing on the bathroom sink counter looking at the mirror saying, I love my hair, I love my skin, I love my life. And the first time I saw that, I said, oh my God, I'm Jessica. Mm -hmm. That's me. That's what I say. I was in the car with Shane one day and I was talking about stuff and he said, what are you doing? I said, I love my life. I love my life. And I've done that in the car with Connor as well. And my kids think that I'm a little bit crazy. Um, So that enthusiasm for life that talking, it, it's, it's at work and it's at home. When my kids were young, when they were in school, family dinner was huge. You know, I was a Girl Scout leader and I was a yes. soccer coach, so there were some years that were pizza years. Mm-hmm. You know, there might have been a little more pizza than, you know, fully home-cooked meals, but we've always done dinner together. And then when the kids got old enough, dinner would be about 20, 25 minutes And then they would clean the kitchen. They would close the two kitchen doors, and they would put on the iPod, and they would dance, and they would do the dishes together. And that could be easily another half hour, which was terrific. But at the table, it's a storytelling. Tell me something good that you did today for somebody else. Tell me something good that happened for you today. I love that. Tell me something that made you smile today. Because if you say, tell me what happened at school, the answer is universal. Nothing. 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 <laughs> recess. Right? Oh, you got recess? I didn't even get recess out of my kids. Yeah. So, you know, that, that approach at work is the same approach at home, and that's because that's who I am. I don't think there's a really big difference. Yeah. yeah well, that, that's that authenticity that comes into play, and it seems like uh, it seems like you bring that person from home to work rather than the other way around. Yeah. It seems that, that that role has played such a, a, a big part of who you are as a leader. I mean, it is who I am. And I, at yeah. this point, I don't know how to be somebody else. Yeah. Do yeah. your children see you as a role model? Do they, do they recognize how you've touched people's lives across Long Island? Um, I think they do now. My daughter's a teacher in Maryland, so she's a mom I've been watching on Facebook. <laughs> um, it's hard for them to escape it now. Oh, you know what? I, I'm going to read you something. Um, when we did my last day on the air, Mm -hmm. then you want to talk about the rock and roll. Uh, one of the, Billy Joel used to be a regular at WLAR Uh and he used to play in a place called Ferns in Roslyn. 
And Ferns was great, and it was intimate, and it was upstairs, downstairs. And one of the guys in his band was a co-owner there, Richie Kanata. Richie's the sax yes. player. Mm. And Lords I've remained friends seconds. with yep. Yep, the Lords of 52nd Street. I've remained friends with Richie for years. Richie and Russell Javers, the guitar player, and Liberty DeVito, the kick-ass drummer. Yes. I mean, the guy is amazing. Yes. Yep. I, I absolutely love them. They could not believe that I was leaving, that I was retiring. And they sent, they decided to do a concert for me. And they did a concert saluting me um, December 20th at the Suffolk Theater in Riverhead, which was phenomenal. I also wore a killer outfit, a leather yes, halter top, very classy, wow. but very classy, everybody says. But it, 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 had, it had its moments in my rock and roll roots. It right. really did. It was awesome. And Jason took the train out from Manhattan. He's a banker. He took the train out from Manhattan, and it was a long schlep out to Riverhead. And then he had to get back in the train, and he had to go back that yeah. night. Wow. And this is what he wrote to me at the end of it. So when you ask if my kids know, Shane is still a little into the ego mom kind of thing, but I know <laughs> he appreciates it. They don't tell me that. I'm their mom. Right. I mean, they don't really tell me, but they can't miss it, especially now it's kind of been hitting them yeah, with the Mack truck. Sure. Yeah. But Jason is the one who spoke out. And Jason said, on the night of December 20th, he was sitting on a train at 10.36 p.m. and wrote, you were literally up on the stage playing drums when I had to leave. So sorry I couldn't say goodbye. It says everything. How many people came tonight and wanted to make the night special for you? You know you've done a lot right to create a night like tonight. And I thought, that's it. That's it. Validation. I'm not dumb. I'm not done, I should say. I'm not done. I don't want to say, you know, I've died and can go to heaven now because I'm not ready for that. But I, I oh, thought... Oh, I get it. I get it. I think he speaks for our three children yeah. when he says that. And he is not overly emotive. He's not a crier, George. <laughs> you know, or like my older brother, Kevin, is right. a crier. Um, but I, that meant everything to me to see that. It yeah. really did. I would have been a puddle if I got that from one of my kids. Oh, yeah. A puddle. And, <laughs> and the reason that I want them to see, listen, I know, I was not always as good and kind as I am. I was not always as soulful as I am. I mean, I've grown into it. I was less we patient when evolved. I was younger in business. I remember learning something in the past couple of years and saying, oh, my God, why am I learning this in my 60s? Immediately followed by my God voice or whatever you'll call it, which is, of course you're still growing. If you stop growing, then you're not living. Yeah. Of course, you're still learning. If you're not learning, then you're still living. I am a nicer person now. And I think that that's a great thing for my kids to see. I think it's also a little intimidating. I really do to see this thing, you know, this, like you said, icon. When I was at the Silver Circle, it was David Ushery. From NBC said, of course we have, you know, the icon Carol Sylvie here. I mean, I think that's a lot for a kid to see. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we don't talk about it at home a lot. I mean, lately there have been a lot of newspapers and other things, know. and it's been unavail uh, unavoidable. But I don't care whether they know I'm an icon. I want them to know what people are saying and why. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's an example. Your mom and your grandma. It's how yep. the, you stand on the shoulders of your mom and your grandma. Absolutely. And your children will stand on the shoulders of what you have done, and, and it will shape so who true. they are. So true. I, I guarantee you right now, and it doesn't have to be later on down the line, 
guarantee you right now, since they're all adult, adults, your children, that if I interviewed them right now, this same style interview on their lives, and I asked them these types of questions, they would say, well, my mom, because yeah. my mom, yeah. you know? Connor asked me, um, you know, we're doing a lot of back and forth on this wedding stuff. And she called in the past few days and she said, okay, a couple of questions. I need this address for a thank you for my shower and I need this address. And can Brooks write, Brooks is her fiance, can Brooks write a couple of the thank yous? I said, he absolutely can. And he's lovely and he's been so involved in this. He's he's smart. He's an aerospace engineer. (laughs) Literally, our son-in-law is a rocket scientist. (laughs) But then Connor said, "Um, and do I have to write a thank you to you? And I said, yes, please, (laughs) because I want to see how she's thinking. That's what I've always told them. Don't give me a gift. Write me a note. Write me a letter. I want to know how we're thinking, how we're connecting. Don't spend money. I I don't need your money. I want to know. What do you think from this whole thing, this whole experience? Because I know now what I think growing up in the house with my mom, my grandmother. I mean, she didn't live in the house, but she was very close by. And, and my dad, who was so positive. You know, here he is. He's a Mexican-American. His dad um, moves back to Mexico when his, his mom died. Dad's mom died when my dad was two and Aunt Sarah, his sister, was four. Their dad went back to Mexico, left El Paso, and sent them to live in a house in Santa Monica with the grandparents. And as the Depression went, more relatives moved in and more relatives moved in. And if you ever talk to my dad, Newsday did an eight-page article on him when he died. In the year 2000, Don Myers was the reporter, and it was a part two in the year 2000. Every month there was one, and the article started like this. Every day a thousand World War II veterans dies in this country. Mm -hmm. This is the story of one of them. Oh, boy. And my dad was in the worst. There's no good place in war, but my dad was in one of the worst places. He was in the South Pacific. He was in Okinawa. He was in Iwo Jima. I mean, the horrible things. You know, if you watch Ken Burns, you know Mm -hmm. how bad those places were. He didn't talk about that. He talked about what we could do. He took my brother, my dad retired uh, the summer between third and fourth grade for me. And Kevin was going into fifth grade, and Kevin, my 11-month-old brother, went to try out for um, Little League. And he came home, and Dad said, how'd it go? And Kevin said, "Um, I didn't make it. There weren't enough coaches, and, you know, we're the scraps, and we didn't make it, essentially. Not those words, but that was the message. And my dad said, that's okay, I'll coach. And my dad took the scraps, and literally... They were the bad news bears. Mm. They were the kids that nobody wanted, and they won. And they played for Ally Deli on Jerusalem Avenue in (laughs) Hicksville. And my dad became, he went from being a medical corpsman to becoming a um, pharmaceutical salesman. And he achieved all kinds of things and won trips, and he was extremely successful. This guy who was in this house, the last year that he was in that house in Santa Monica, there was no room for him anymore. There were families living there. And after he died for that Newsday article... His cousin Pete told us they hung a light bulb from a wire under the back porch and put a blanket down, and that's where Dad lived the last year that he was Mm. in the house before he enlisted. And we said, oh, Dad was like Harry Potter. Yeah. (laughs) But, I mean, that was essentially it, but he never talked about that. He talked about what we could do and what you're going to do next. And I had the spiritual side from my mother and the optimism, no excuses side from my father. And that's what I'm hoping that my kids are really seeing. Love that. Wow. Side note, um, 
I I called up Kristen. Did you meet Kristen from Suffolk Theater, the manager there, general manager? Um, Kristen Passeri. Briefly, briefly, yes. Yeah, so so I got married at Suffolk Theater. Oh, did you really? Years ago. Oh, what a great sight. What it was a, a great, great wedding. Yeah. What a great wedding that was. We had such a blast. I got married there, and when I saw that your farewell uh, party was there, I called Kristen because I wanted to get a picture. Uh, I didn't wind up getting through, and then I had a childcare issue anyway, so I couldn't go. But... Um, I was so excited for you for that event. So when I got married, I had uh, Decadia open for us, but wow, Big Shot performed oh, yeah. at our wedding. Mike Dill Judas yeah. and company. Big Shot, which is when I got super friendly with him. And so uh, I saw all the pictures, all the videos. It looked like a blast. I'm so happy for you. So great. <laughs> yeah. So great. Um, so we're winding down here. I want to get to uh, uh, one last thing before we jump into our big three. And that is when I met you. Um, so I met you at TEDx Farmingdale on September 7th for the first time, and we had been conversing on Instagram a little bit beforehand. Oh, can I say, I saw you on Instagram, yeah. and uh, I mean, I'm not a digital native, uh-huh. so, you know, I'm still doing a little bit of catch-up, and um, I mean, better than many people that I know, but um, I remember I, I started to see some of the stuff that you were doing, and I thought it was interesting. And I knew you were doing the TEDx talk, and I wanted to see it. And I reached out to you, and I sent you a message which said, I feel like a 14-year-old. You're my uh, first Instagram relationship. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> I mean, I was I was so happy to get that message because, you know, it's funny. When we were talking about PR for the event, one of my goals was to get on Elisa and Elizabeth, um, our PR person. Uh, um, I think she said she knew you. Uh, she works with the Inn, Dana Lopez. She's yes. There. Um, and so we reached out to Elisa and Elizabeth. We reached out to you and we didn't, uh, I don't know, through the News News 12 channels and we didn't really get anything back. And I said, okay, uh, no problem. And then here you are. Showing up to the event. It hit me up on Instagram, and I'm like, well, this is, that was easy. That it was, was meant to be. And so when you reached out that way, I said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not reaching out to her in the journalist capacity. I want her to come as a thought leader because I knew how interested you were in the I impact of I was blown tech. away yeah. by what I told you. I've seen two other local TEDx's, locations not to be mentioned. Yeah. You blew oh. them away. The The... I don't want to say the organization of it, but the presentation of it showed the power of what is. It showed the power of storytelling, why it's so vital. And I always go back to, these things are great, but we need to be talking to each other and getting other people's stories. I agree. And, And so you honored storytelling and you did a fabulous job and you're doing one next year and I will be there next year because you you. really just do. And I know, Jennifer, you are a big part of that, too. You, It is the best TEDx I've seen, oh. and you're oh, phenomenal. Oh, my goodness. You're Thank phenomenal. You so much. Thank you so Thank you. Blown away. Blown away. Wow. Yeah. Well, you guys Incredible. blew me away that day. <laughs> Thank you. And so, so we met during that time. You took an interest in the event, and your presence was so important to me as a thought leader trying to spread positivity through the stage, right? Um, and we had made plans to get together for lunch to discuss the stage and more things, but then I noticed the communication slowed down a little bit. And subsequently, I was dealing with my father's health issues. My father was diagnosed with um, prostate cancer amidst the whole TEDx Farmingdale thing. Mm. And I posted. He's doing well. He's doing really good. Yeah. Uh, and so I posted a sort of cryptic social media post more about like positivity, right? We're going to get through this kind of thing. But I didn't want to call out exactly what was going on. And you reached out to me asking what type of health issue I was dealing with, because I didn't specifically say it was my dad. Um, and when you reached out, 
I kind of realized something was going on there. Um, and so October 11th, when you were ready to share an important part of your private life, you posted a video with the caption, right in the middle of a perfectly good September, I finally saw my doctor about my persistent cough, and then this happened, stage four cancer, right? Um, when I found out, Carol, I was immediately drawn even further to speaking with you because cancer has played uh, such a pivotal role in my life. Uh, my sister-in-law, although she wasn't my sister-in-law back then, um, and her journey through rhabdoid cancer as a, as a teenager uh, is what changed my life. So that, that person that I was back then, that, as I call it, shithead that I was back then, <laughs> um, that began a series of events that completely changed my life um, and turned me into the person that I've sort of evolved into now. Um, you know, we lost my, I lost my favorite uncle earlier this year uh, to sorry. cancer. Thank you. Um, and of course, my father, who was thankfully healthy and recovering, thanks to Dr. Haas and Cyberknife, the Cyberknife unit yes. at Winthrop, who are awesome. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit um, briefly. I didn't really want this to be the focus of the interview because this is not you. This well, is it's not, not my whole story. It's this a piece a, of my story. This is a tiny piece of your story, yep. although super important. And so that's why I just wanted this to be a tiny part of the interview. I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, and, and whatever level you're comfortable with, of course, um, why it's so important that as leaders we share the things that we've learned in order to possibly help somebody that's experiencing this, whether it's now or down the line. Because, and this is interesting, I was I was watching a special on ABC last week. I don't know if you caught this, the Alex Trebek special. I didn't see oh, it. Oh, it's so good. So uh, they have their their, <laughs> their their greatest uh, uh, greatest champion in the world tournament this right. week. They're three biggest champions ever, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the special was about Jeopardy and about Alex and what he's going through right now. Of course, right. he has pancreatic cancer. Um, he revealed that a fan wrote him a note thanking him openly about his cancer and his, and his symptoms. He said, thank you, Alex. My brother-in-law decided because he was experiencing some of the same symptoms that you had announced in your public announcement to go and see his doctor. Today, he found out that he has stage one pancreatic cancer. Looks like it's very treatable, so I wanted to thank you because I really feel like you saved his life. I am making a difference with my suffering, Trebek said. Agreed. Yeah, as a, as a, as a public figure, um, and especially a thoughtful one that is a, a storyteller, right? How important was this for you to get out there and, and tell the story? You know, when I look back, because these things happened so fast. I saw you in early September at TED. I was leading a huge conference with almost 900 people, wicked women in cable television, on the main stage in the main ballroom at the Marriott Marquis. And I, I was so excited about it. And it went off phenomenally well, Monday, September 16th. And one of my greatest goals was not to cough during the entire thing. I didn't want to cough because yeah. I've been coughing for a year. I'd seen my doctor, but now with all this managed care, Every time I'd call back after that, and I knew I had reflux. Mm -hmm. Every time I called back after that, I kept getting a PA or an NP. I couldn't get into my doctor. Mm -hmm. And finally, the morning of September 18th, I was talking on the air, and words would come out like that, like a cough would just involuntarily come out. And I said on the air that morning, I hope I get to see my doctor today. And I got off the air after four and a half hours, and I called my doctor. And they said, yeah, you can come see the doctor today. And I did. And... He took an x-ray of my lung, and he turned gray. And within two days, I had a PET scan that night. 
uh, that was a Wednesday. I had a PET scan that night, the Friday. And Monday, I was in with the oncologist who said, you have stage four cancer. And within minutes, in my head came the words, thank you, God, for healing me. But then it was kind of this, just this speeding roller coaster of we have these tests, we have these things we need to do. And I needed, I needed to control my narrative. People were going to be talking about it anyway. Yeah. And so you might as well get the straight story. Yeah. Not because I'm a control freak, but you might as well get the straight story. If I'm going to be off the air for weeks or for months, get, you know, know what it really is. So yeah. that, that was the first reason. Um, I also, I wasn't sure what I was going to say the day that I videoed the message from the beach, which was um, that I've shared stories with you over time, good stories, bad stories, and now I'm sharing this story with you. And I don't remember exactly what I said because I really didn't write it out. But I said I've just been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and for some reason I cannot pray for myself right now. So I'm asking all of you, and th this was a big, motiva uh, big motivating factor for me. I can't pray for myself right now. So I need all of you to pray for me or send me positive wishes, whatever it is. However, I can pray for the doctors because they have to get this right. The other, and, and that was all true. I couldn't pray for me, and I knew the power of prayer, and I am so convinced that the brain tumors are gone and that the lung tumor is shrinking because of the prayer of people. Yeah. I got prayers from other countries, yeah. literally. But here's the other piece of it. My mom served everybody else first. She was one of seven kids. She was the oldest girl, so she was like back in those days, you know, mama mm -hmm. number two in the house. And... My dad at one point had gone into a coma for two months. He'd been very, very healthy. He went to a coma for two months. He had pneumococcal meningitis when I was pregnant with Connor, right after I'd gotten married. And mom took such good care of him after that. He lived for another eight years. Mm -hmm. During that time and leading up to it, she had a breast lump that she didn't mm -hmm. talk about. She didn't tell anybody about. And Connor was one. Uh, Connor was two, and Shane was one. And Bob had gotten in a car accident. Mm. And I needed somebody to babysit. I was going back and forth to doctors and whatever. And one day I hugged my mom. It was February. And I hugged her. And she always wore a lot of sweaters. And she always said she was cold. And after dad was sick, she always, you know, they changed what they were eating. And, and I said, Mom, you're a real. I could feel her ribs. Mm -hmm. And I went to the doctor with her. And it turned out she had breast cancer. Mm. And I sat in the office with her and her doctor and it was the doctor who had taken care of my dad, who had been in a coma several years earlier. And the doctor turned around to my mother. He said, no, no, we're not going to the examining room first. We're going to go to my office. And he looked at her and he said, how are your breasts? And she said, one's bad. And he said, which one? The left one. And my head whipped around like I had whiplash. Mm. And I said, you knew for seven years? Mm. And she was part of a generation that didn't talk about it. Yeah. You didn't talk about that kind of thing. And damn it, there is no shame in cancer. There no. is absolutely no shame in cancer. And that was the other reason that I spoke about it. And I've gotten some of those letters and some of those messages. Thank you so much. I've gone to the doctor since then. I'm going to have my cough checked out since then. Thank you. I'm encouraged to talk about it. You know what? There's something that I need to deal with within my family or within myself. And that's why I did it, because there is no shame in cancer. Yep. I needed the prayers, yeah. and I got them. Hallelujah. But 
also because I decided at that moment I was not going to do what my mom did. Yeah. And you have the courage to ask for that help and that comfort. And that's that tribe mentality that we talked about right at the top of this show is you you need to lean on that community and that tribe to bring you forward between that and your faith. And yeah. the great doctors that, that you have. You got it. Care. You nailed it. I, I say about my friends, I would do anything in the world for you. You know it. I would also ask you for anything. I would. We had friends who came and cleaned out our garage. When I was in the hospital having lung surgery, uh, a storm was coming through. And one of our friends, Chris Gallagher, he's amazing, went to our garage to make sure that our generator was up and running for the new season and when he went in there, he said, mm, there's too much. We live in an old house, and it's a freestanding garage in the back. He said, there's too much in here. It must drive Carol crazy. He got together a bunch of guys and their sons, and they took everything out of the garage. They cleaned out what we didn't need. It was so helpful. It wasn't me throwing it away. Bob was able to part with some things, you know, maybe some of those old baseball bats or the inflatable in a way that if I was doing it, maybe I was the mean wife. But with the guys there, they were like, Bob, you really don't need this, you know. It was unbelievable. I mean, the things that our friends have done. I didn't have a Christmas decoration up in the house because once I was finally okay, which was barely Thanksgiving week, I went back to work December 2nd, which was four days after Thanksgiving. I didn't have a Christmas decoration in my house the second weekend of December. And my old roommate, Ellen, from Long Beach called and said, how's your house looking? And we had had it painted on the outside Mm -hmm. in the interim. And I said, "Um, I don't have up a single Christmas decoration. She said, we're coming this weekend. And she got together a couple of girls and wow. decorated the inside of my house. It's like what Jason said. And life got a little more normal again. Right? Life got more normal. Yeah. But it's exactly what he said in his text message to you. Right. He, you have to know that you did something right to have all this attention. Yeah. And so you've been kicking some major ass these last few months. Thank you very much. And I am so happy <laughs> to hear this. Uh, you, you have been sharing your experiences. You've brought so much light into this world. And, and this is something I sent to you in a message that I sent to you. Uh, Carol Silva's work is not nearly close to yes. being done. <laughs> Amen. Right? Amen, um, brother. So what I'm going to do is, uh, uh, first of all, will you come back one day? Uh, sure. Okay. I want to hear this entire journey when it's over because it will be over. Mm-hmm. Right? I want to hear this entire journey. Okay. Uh, and I want to do that. In and of itself, I want it. I want it to be its own show if we can one day. Um, so, what I want to jump to real quick is just I, I want to talk a little bit about the comeback, and then I want to do the big three because okay. uh, we've kept you here long enough. Um, the comeback. I am a huge sports fan, and so I'm a, I'm such a sucker for a good comeback story. You announced in May that you were retiring from News 12, then you were diagnosed in September, and you went away for a little bit, and Detour. then you said. Oh, I'm not going out like that. No way. No, no, no. I no am, way. I am not ending this spectacular 44-year career on cancer's terms. I mean, I'm ending it on mine terms. And so you came back and you did your three-week farewell run, which was so awesome. You, like, didn't miss a beat. I, I got up at, I don't know, what time did you go? Four in the morning? 4.30 in the morning. 4.30 to watch. I set my alarm to watch you. And I was like in anticipation, like a little kid, right? Uh, it, it was amazing. And so Jennifer's talked about this a lot. Um, we don't really have too much time to go into it, but Elizabeth, Elisa, Rich, oh man, we saw that love there, and they were they were huge. And not only did I see the support they gave you, but 
but I learned about a lot of the support you had given them over the years, you know, watching Christian when Elisa was going through stuff and being in, in the delivery room with Elizabeth and, and, and being with Rich for his surgery. And, mm -hmm. and so I love how you handle that tribe and leadership at its finest. This is where I'll leave this moment and then we'll jump into the big three. You said the following, we don't compete with each other. The four of us work to make each other better. That's the secret to the success of a team and what a team you guys had. It's amazing. Awesome. And you should all know that uh, Friday night, Elizabeth, Elisa, and I had dinner at Elisa's house, and we had the kids there, and I brought down my Christmas presents a little bit late for the kids, and we were just totally hanging around. 2.15 this morning. It's the first day back to a normal schedule at News 12. And yeah. last week wasn't really, didn't feel like a retirement week. 2.15 on the nose this morning I woke up. And I texted Elizabeth and Elisa. And I said, good morning. Have a great yeah. day. I love you. Love it. Oh, it is still, it. we are still the family that we are. They're really excited because now I can do more babysitting and help clean out closets and do all those things that I've also <laughs> done with them over time. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Carol, one sentence. What advice do you have for Erin Colton jumping into the anchor desk? Um, be you. She is so bright. She is so energetic. I, I said to her, the worst thing about her becoming the morning anchor is that we have lost the best street mm. reporter. Yeah, she's good. In New York. She's good. Maybe in the country. She is phenomenal. She could be making, you know, cannolis with the Nonas at Glencoe for their St. Rocco Festival, and all of a sudden there's an accident in a train or an MS-13 body has been found. And 18 minutes later... She can be on the scene, yeah. and it's the completely other pocket of her brain yeah. that deals with the heartbreaking news. She is so bright. She's wonderful. She's going to be great. So my advice to her, be yourself, girlfriend. Love it. Yeah. Love it. What is next for Carol Silva? What's next for me is to learn, to learn more, to expand, to grow, and to share it. Yeah. We can't wait. We that. can't wait. We so, can't and wait. And we hope we could be a part of it, too. Yes, yeah. absolutely. This is the team. The Absol tribe just grew. I love it. <laughs> I love grew. that. I love when yeah. my tribe grows with right. great people. Here we go. The okay. big three. The big three from the launch cast. First one. So big three, this is your top three quick answers, right? Mm-hmm. Top three spark moments in your life. Um. Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess... It, the day that I decided that I had a crush on Bob Riley was absolutely <laughs> one of them. It, it was. I told Lee Tyrell. She was with me. Um, a spark moment was March of 1987 when I did that debate at the Nassau Bar Association. Yeah. And I wasn't humble then. I turned around when Stephen Skeering, the assistant district attorney, said, you know, you're great. Why aren't you in News 12? Don't ask me. Ask him. Yeah. So I would say that's another one. Um, and maybe my decision to share my diagnosis. Now, before that, I would definitely have to say the birth of my first child and then equally of Shane. Yeah. But that birth, when I, when I saw that baby, oh, yeah. it's just such a moment. And George, you'll never be a mom. You can be the greatest dad in the world, but you'll never be a yeah, mom. I get it. I understand what you're saying. Top three female leaders at this very moment. Ellen DeGeneres. Mm. And now I know there was some award show last night that I didn't see. I don't. E I don't even know which one it was. I'm not huge on the award shows. It has nothing to do with okay. that. I almost. I almost didn't want to say it. I didn't see the show. It's because 
She is a comeback kid. Mm -hmm. She is who she is. And she tells us to be nice to each other, be mm -hmm. kind to each other. She ends everything with that. So definitely Ellen DeGeneres. Um, there's a woman named Elizabeth McCall. She okay. is a Long Islander. Elizabeth um, is the mother of seven children. And Elizabeth was the New York State Banking Superintendent on September 11th. Mm. She was in Tokyo, got on board the only plane in the world that was really flying, and it was picking up American important officials and bringing them back to the United States, got the banks up and running in two days, which is phenomenal, um, went on to work for a company that would help companies that were having financial difficulties examine where they were in trouble, where they were screwing up, and became very well known around the world for that, was invited in to straighten out the Vatican Bank, was invited in to straighten out the Vatican economy. Mm -hmm. She tried for two years to do that. And now she is with Christine Lagarde in the European Central Bank Board. Mm -hmm. This mom from Long Island with seven kids. Wow. She's wow. phenomenal. She is an absolute world leader. We need women in leadership positions because we That's bring a different sensibility to it. And she is one of the finest. And people in the business world know who she is. Everybody should, should know who she is. And the other is moms, is really moms. It's, you know, I was talking to Bob about this because I know you do your threes. And I said, any working mom and every mom works inside the home and some also work outside the home. And it's not an easy job, but it is a job of the greatest leadership that yes, there it is. is. Yes, is. it is. Yes, it is. Top three News 12 moments. Definitely September 11th. Okay. Um, when I first got there, my first winter, I told the assignment desk, crusty old New York City assignment desk people who decided what stories to do, uh, that I wanted to do a story on homelessness. They said, we don't have homeless on Long Island. You Long Island people don't have homeless. I said, give me 45 minutes. Yeah. Within 45 minutes after a phone call to the Interfaith Nutrition Network, mm. I was standing in a cardboard community in the snow alongside the Meadowbrook Parkway, and I met Julio. And I did his story and how the inn was helping him. And he had lived wow. in an SRO. He was a poor guy. He'd had some issues. But he was working. He was a maintenance guy at Roosevelt Field Mall. A kid living in another room in the SRO found matches, and the place burned down, and he lost everything. Wow. He was homeless. I did the story, and two guys in their 20s from Baldwin who had bought a house called News 12 and said, we want to take Julio in until he gets back on oh, his feet. Oh, that's great. That's incredible. That is a moment. Uh, and then the send-off of the century. Yes. I mean, what can I say? Yes. My last day, my last week. Elizabeth and Elisa, who literally wrote, we all have a story, uh -huh. but they wrote and immortalized mine. Uh, Everybody yeah. deserves that. I don't great. know that we'll all get it, but they were phenomenal. It was so great. That's it was my great other. to see. Yeah. Top three lessons you've learned from cancer. Um, I'm strong, I'm honest, and I'm tough, and I'm loved. I'll give you four. Yeah, thanks. I took four. <laughs> Top three failures. Um, I wasn't always this nice, but I have grown. That's definitely, that's probably the first that comes. Um, not getting the job at News 12 the first time, but I learned how to keep going. And I failed trig in high school at Holy Trinity. I got a 49 on the regents. And I thought that you know, kind of study and work more on the stuff that you're good at. No, don't. Work on the stuff you're not good at. <laughs> Love it. Top three accomplishments. My children, my children, my children. That's three. Um, 
The sense of optimism and faith that I have is my other greatest accomplishment and my absolute drive and nature to help others. I love it. I love it. That's a great way to end this. Wow. What an episode this has been. I, 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 I'm so honored that you joined us today. This was so, so incredible. And, and I'm honored that this was the first step yeah. after News 12 into the, yes. next, into the next journey. Uh, I'm so thankful for Jennifer for being here today. We talked at length about this. And I'll, I'll let everybody in on the secret. Um, I'm still toying with this format, right? I'm still toying with this format. Um, I'm really happy about how our interviews are going. But I am seeing that... Uh, with the research I do and the type of interview it is, it's it's hard for a second person to be here. And so originally the thought was to have a rolling co-host, a, a new guest co-host every episode. And then I did one episode without one and I was like, ooh, I, like, I kind of like this. Um, but I had asked Jen to be on this one because this was an important one and I knew she, that she could handle this well. And so she said to me, feel free to say no because I know you don't have a co-host now. I said, no, 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 this is... We, we could do this together. I know we could pull this off. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you, that you joined this, Jen. This was, this was great. And Thank I'm glad that I got to spend time with you and get to know you. Thank you, Carol. I feel the same. For I'm the s- first time. Yes, for the first time. Yeah. Not the last time. Not the, Not last, the last time. time. No, we, we're going to have – this will be a two-parter for sure, and then we will have you back for the next part of the story. So yeah. We're going you know to hold you up on that. <laughs> you know what this means? We did it. Woo! We did it, guys. Thank you for joining us on the LaunchCast. Follow me at Launchpad CEO. Follow the, the LaunchCast. Carol's doing her stretches. I am. Carol's it's time to stretches. stand. Uh, follow uh, the LaunchCast uh, on Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, subscribe to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You know the deal. All these places, guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. God bless. Bye. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.